Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents, like ISB agents, know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Ah, callous. Like a fender bender when you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of our 19,000 State Farm agents today via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app. Find one today at statefarm.com. This is your fault. You and Chopper. You were the one running the diagnostic. You should have checked. I'll check you into the wall. We have to tell Kanan. Binge Mode contains adult content. Kanan. Binge Mode also contains spoilers. Wow, how could you tell? Could you sense it? No. I could hear you two yelling outside the door. And now, Binge Mode. I can reach him. Ezra, Kanan gave his life so that you could live. If he's taken out of this moment, you all die. You don't understand what you're asking me to do. Yes, I do. You can't save your master, and I can't save mine. I'm asking you to let go. I thought you were going to say, yeah, like Chopper. I'm doing a program. Oh, <laughs> Are you about to head into hyperspace That's here? Am it. I going to lose you? Just through my hyperspace bladder. <laughs> Welcome to Binge Mode Star Wars. Yeah. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. That's right. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. Ah! What a great website. The best. Joining me today, now that he's finished communing with the Loth Wolves, it's Ringer Senior Creative, your Jedi Master, Jason Concepcion. That's right, Mal Doom. <laughs> it's time for Benjamin Star Wars, where we're exploring the wider Star Wars universe from the Skywalker saga films to the anthology films to the Mandalorian, plus numerous other facets of a galaxy far, far away. And after today, only one episode left until we return again, of course. There's always more Star Wars podcasts. Clone Wars Season 7 on That's the horizon. Right. Please make the journey to Adelon with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings. <laughs> or we'll send the pergle. After you. And listen, you cannot, you oh. just can't run from them. It's going to wrap its tentacles can't, around you. Like, absolutely can't run from them. They can travel through on. hyperspace. They like eating gas. I mean, we all need to nourish ourselves. You can't stop them. Please also follow <laughs> us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore. Join our Facebook group, which is only for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to share your favorite chopper gifts. What a special boy. He's great. He's got arms, which is such a, I don't understand why you don't just carry that over. Keep the arms. The little arms are great. He's just the best. And please head to the ringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. Fits perfectly 
under whatever storm or scout trooper armor you need to steal on a given mission. And there's always some to steal. It's constantly around. <laughs> Sabine never has an issue finding stormtrooper armor that fits her like a glove. Perfection. Last time on Binge Mode, we explored the wonders of Ahsoka Tano in our latest character study. And today we're diving deep. Deep! Into the beloved animated television series. Star Wars Rebels. As always, spoiler warning, we will be going deep on details from the entire Rebels and Star Wars sagas to date, taking official canon and legends, hashtag not canon, into account. So grab a seed in the Phantom, or the Phantom 2, or the Ghost, darling specters, because it's time to head to Lothal. Jason? Mm-hmm? Slow down. Coffee's hot anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That coffee and the force is trying to tell you something. Listen to it. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's search our feelings and use the force. Defining theme of this episode is newfound perspective. Let's talk about the show's formation, its legacy, its too short lifespan. Star Wars Rebels premiered on October 3rd, 2014 on the Disney Channel with Spark of Rebellion. Airing as the film debut, the series shifted to Disney XD following that, and it was the very first post-Disney acquisition Star Wars project. Amazing. Which means just a ton of pressure, folks. Yes. An absolute metric ton of pressure as Disney is really looking to put its stamp on this IP. Clone Wars, as we talked about during that pod, ended for a time at least, coming back, obviously. Thank the gods! But it ended specifically to clear the way for Rebels because Disney wanted to put its own stamp on Star Wars TV. So in a statement issued in March of 2013, Lucasfilm announced that it would be winding down Clone Wars and winding down Star Wars detours, which was in the process of being created at that point. So this was thrilling, but also for people who loved everything that had come before, a real moment of what does this mean? What happens to the stuff that I love? Yes. Fortunately, Disney saw that they had a lot of creative talent involved with Clone Wars, involved with the projects that were made before they came aboard. And key figures in the early days included Dave Filoni, who oversaw the project until its conclusion and remains the godfather of Star Wars television, Simon Kinberg. Greg Wiesman, Carrie Beck, Henry Gilroy, and others involved as well. In general, as Filoni noted, often in the press in the run-up to the premiere, many members of the Clone Wars creative team and staff were involved in Rebels. So there was some continuity. Dave Filoni understood the weight of the thing that they were tasked with doing. He said in 2014, the Slash film, quote, I'm trying to maintain a legacy, and I feel very strongly about being entrusted with that legacy. Amazing. Must have felt incredible. I, can you believe, I can't even imagine what that's going to feel like. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. We're going to talk more in the coming minutes about how they found the characters and the time frame and the story that they chose to focus on. But one thing that they seemed to settle on pretty quickly was a group, centering on a yeah. group. As Filoni told Collider in 2014, quote, we were all brainstorming for ideas, and one of the ideas that carry, carry back, had was for this A-team group that went around righting wrongs. And I always liked that idea. I told her it was really similar to an idea that I had for Clone Wars in the beginning. Fascinating to think 
of Clone Wars taking that form. And Filoni has spoken before about how they weren't sure that they were going to be allowed to use Anakin and Obi-Wan as the centers of that show. So what that could have been, of course. And Rebels, the successor to Clone Wars, precursor where we are in time Mm -hmm. now to a resistance, of course, both see really unique visual Oh, for sure. Aesthetic. It was inspired by Ralph McCurry's old concept art for the original trilogy, which absolutely is natural and makes a lot of sense in Star Wars, is now returning to this time frame, uproar in the galaxy, the Empire reigning, and the nascent rebellion just beginning to take shape. Filoni also cited modern influences such as Tangled. He told Collider's (laughs) Christina Radish in 2014, when I saw Tangled, I watched that movie and I was like, wow, that's doing what they did so well in 2D, so spectacularly in CG. I was blown away by it. We've actually incorporated some of that look and feel into our characters. The Flynn Rider character and his expressions were just fantastic. If you haven't seen Tangled, Google Flynn Rider, Google that now, and you will see clearly the similarity in the visual aesthetic for the characters. Miyazaki, also an influence, according to a 2014 LA Times piece by Patrick Kevin Day. Kathleen Kennedy, was influenced by Miyazaki's iconic art style. Quote, I know that Kathy is a very big fan of Miyazaki, so I told art director Killian Plunkett to look at his designs and what makes them so iconic and memorable, Filoni said, adding, the biggest thing is you want older fans to watch and say, wow, that looks like Star Wars. And I want Uh the younger fans who have never experienced it before to experience it the way I experienced A New Hope. I love that. And that's going to be a theme of our discussion today, the desire to establish a totally new and unique template and also find that connective tissue to the thing other people love, to give someone that experience for the first time and to give people who already had that that sense of coming home. The desire to place the rebel story in that spot, that precise pre-rebellion, pre-Yavin place in the Star Wars timeline was was not a given, though. It could have been anywhere, at least... Based on the way that the creators talked about it, as Simon Kimberg, one of the EPs, told Entertainment Weekly's James Hibbert in a 2014 interview, quote, we just started to talk about where it would fall in the general Star Wars timeline. Really, there was no predetermination going in. It could have been a prequel, sequel, a standalone universe. Wow. Amazing. (laughs) The main thing for us is how do we tell a story that enhances this universe, that answers questions that audiences may or may not have had, but at least will make it feel like the world is fuller after watching the show. That's really cool to think about, that moment in time where they really had no idea what it was going to be and how they chose to center it in this spot where you have so many preconceived notions about what that would mean, but also so much opportunity to flesh out and expand. It's really extremely bold when you just go back and think about it. You're starting a brand new story and you're setting it in really the most iconic period of this tale's history. Yeah, and then uh, speaking, it's a lot. speaking very routinely and openly about the fact that New Hope in particular was the frame of reference, yeah. was the thing that they were trying to evoke in terms of tone and vibe. According to The Guardian at the MIP Junior Television Industry Conference, I can't believe this is a thing. I know. At the MIP Junior Television Industry Conference in Cannes, Filoni credited Indiana Jones as yet another influence. Uh-huh. Quote, a lot of our action is actually inspired by Indiana Jones. Indy will often inform the audience right off the bat, here's a problem, here's how I'm going to solve it. But then other two or three problems emerge that he didn't foresee, and that's what drives the tension. Yeah, the, the show is really good at a style of action that, like, for lack of a better term, 
I would call like good news, bad news. Mm -hmm. It's like good news. We found where the uh, target of the mission is. Bad news. It's guarded by stormtroopers. (laughs) Good news. I've just defeated the stormtroopers. Bad news. Darth Maul just showed up. And you're almost equally confident heading into every episode that they will find a way through, but also that something troubling will yes. be fall- will be fallen. It will never be easy. So what did this all ultimately generate? It gave us four shorts and then four seasons. 75 total episodes broken down as follows. 15 in season one, 22 in season two, 22 in season three, and then 16 in season four. It's one of those things where depending on which database you look at, you might mm. see slightly different counts because there are a lot of two-parters in there. Right. So sometimes it's grouped differently. Even on Disney Plus, for example, it says 15 episodes in season four because they're counting the finale, the two episodes that make up the finale as one. The series concluded for now on March <laughs> 5th, 2018. And the whole time you're watching Rebels, you feel that it is completely under control and heading toward a point that they knew they wanted to reach. And they ended it on their own terms. So on the one hand, it's devastating when it ends because you so badly want more and hopefully we'll get it one day. But you feel that they were able to tell the story that they wanted to tell. And you also feel this sense of peace that they had about that. Great point. Filoni had this really lovely quote that he gave to IndieWire in 2018 when the show was ending. I've always felt the best stories end. And then other stories begin. <laughs> and there's no better way than to take two of my favorite characters and have them ride off into the sunset. That makes me want to cry. It's like such a lovely, heartening, inspiring way of looking at it. Because the thing you love will still be there for you to return to. But you can also go have a new adventure. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, with so much of the narrative around ongoing stories in television and movies being about will they stick the landing, Rebels stuck the landing. And they gave you it, oh, it yeah. every way you wanted it. You want oh, to know yeah. what happens. You want to see what happens in the future. Absolutely. You want a little bit of mystery to hang your hat on. It gave you everything. Still, fan support for a fifth season or return to these characters is fierce. And it's right there waiting for It'll happen. Give it Let me just us. say that it will happen. I would consider it the closest thing to a lock of anything in the world. We will get some kind <laughs> of the search for Ezra. You don't bring Ahsoka back in her Gandalf best white robes and not return to that at some point. (laughs) Our pals have popped up elsewhere as well. The Ghost, Chopper, and Hera all appear briefly in Rogue One. The fight on Scarif, you could see him. It's really great. Chopper, Rogue One, if you you haven't seen it yet. Amazing. Uh, The Ghost (laughs) is in Rise of Skywalker, and Kanan's voice is among those right here on Exegol. In the heart of a Jedi lies their strength. Rebels also spawned a ton of spinoff media or coincided with related stuff, including the 12-issue comic Kanan, the Kanan Hera meet cute novel, A New Dawn. Hell yeah. Jason's favorite. Hold on. Let me just say this. As the thing you're going to say next, you have a personal version of this where you edited out Kanan's name and put your name in. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for writing this. Jason is in love with Hera. I think she's great. She's and obviously uh, genetically, you know, things can work out as we know. <laughs> Timothy, <Sons. laughs> the things that you were just doing with your hands as you <laughs> as you said that, or I gotta say, the, what were you fondling there? The... I, I love the. I love the. Do you think they were just like getting it on before, like with no feelings involved? They thought. I think that they were clearly intimate with each other the entire time. And the true emotional breakthrough and commitment came at the very end. Right. I I think that's that's how I think that's right. A lot of listen, you're under fire. 
state of war. You never exactly. know from one minute to the next what's going to happen. What's and the real focus you fi- here? You find each other in these moments of dark loneliness, another warm body in the, mm-hmm. in the endless vacuum of space. It's cold but it was space. only It was only at the <laughs> end that they truly admitted how they felt. Yes. And, and all of the, the times early on that, that Hera calls, you know, Canaan love, there's obviously affection and devotion. Yeah. But... It got to that very special, yeah, yeah. you're the most important thing in the universe to me place right at the end. And then he died. Uh, Awful. There, there's, of course, <laughs> and of course, Timothy Zahn's new canon Thrawn trilogy ties into the beginning of Rebels. Marvel's- I got a beautiful uh, hardback set of these for Hanukkah. Oh, wow. Thanks, Adam. Wow. Lovely. Marvel's <laughs> ensuing Thrawn comic miniseries adaption of Zahn's trilogy and video games like Star Wars Rebels, Recon Missions and more. So much more. A whole new universe, a whole new cast of characters and places and things. Let's talk a little bit more about why Rebels works so well and why we love it so much. Some of it comes from where they ultimately did place it in time. And again, how that creates something that is totally new and enhances that new perspective for us, but also gives us that sense of the comforting embrace of the thing we already had a fondness for. So it begins five years before the events of A New Hope, and it runs ultimately to... Zero BBY, though, of course, the epilogue is set five years after that, further in the future, when we see sweet little Jason Zindala rocking his green hair. So, in essence, part of the magic of Rebels is that it at once expands and shrinks the world. It alters what you thought you knew about how the rebellion Mm. formed and what that challenge to the Empire looked like, but it also creates this totally intimate focus on this one team and family and group of people that allows you to totally orient yourself. And that was incredibly deliberate and really the key to the whole thing. As Filoni said to Slash Film in 2014, quote, you know, I wouldn't really want to go to Yavin because I think it makes the galaxy seem so small. The more times you go there, the harder it is to believe that the Empire didn't find them there. I fucking love that. I, I love that, that is too. so astute and exactly right. If you just keep returning to the exact same places and events and yeah. things, at some point, human nature is just a, no matter how much you love something, you're going to start to lose interest and, in learning more about it. And then, of course, choosing when to parcel out those things. Yes. When they eventually do go to Yavin at the very dawn of the rebellion and meet Mon Mothma right. and Jen Dodonna there. It's the perfect time exactly. to do it. It makes sense that they would yes. be there then. And again, like part of the, what is the heart of Star Wars? We've debated this and talked about this so much, especially in the in the discussions of the sequel films with things like the way that Luke is presented in The Last Jedi. It's not just about a couple people. It's right. not just about a couple it's things. The galaxy is a huge vast. galaxy. Huge That's galaxy. why so many people love Rogue One so much, because you got to see these other people who had a stake and a hand in saving Not only the world, but many worlds. And Rebels really understands the importance of that. The show focuses on the origins of the Rebellion and its efforts to thwart Palpatine's empire in ways big and small, wherever they can. But it also focuses first on a new team, a new cell, the Ghost Spectre crew. Can we talk about the Ghost for a second? Sure. The ship? It's a great fucking ship. I mean, it's a very... One of my all-time faves. It's a utilitarian ship. No bells and whistles. It does what it's supposed to do. It's not a flashy look. It's like the Falcon in the way that it totally. it looks nondescript, mm-hmm. but it gets the job done. I mean, the way that Hera, first of all, the brilliant pilot, maneuvers that exceptional, but also you scramble that signal, the ghost can scoop by. It's named the ghost for a reason. Right. Scoop by, Imperial detection. And also the thing I love about it is really that it is... Tight quarters? Well, it's a home. 
It's a home. This is one of those. They how did live there. How did Canaan and Hera manage to get away with this on the ghost? They must have not done it on anything on the ghost because it's just. I don't know. It's a, a small Ezra's ship. Jacking off to a Sith holocron all night, all fucking day. Sabine's, yeah, but he almost gets caught several times. Sabine's listening to graffiti music, yeah, and true. Zeb snores too loud to notice. Chopper's not interested. <laughs> Probably fucked uninterrupted for all five years. <laughs> Panning in after Clone Wars sprawling focus was a deliberate right. strategy. Right. As Greg Wiseman told IGN in 2014, quote, that cast expands and there are more people. But the focus is still on this small group of rebels who are basically gadflies from the standpoint of the Empire yes. they're fighting. Love that. The amount of damage that six individuals can do is probably pretty limited. But as they begin to build alliances and find allies and expand, the show gets bigger and bigger in scope. Related quote here, and then we'll talk about this idea. Kinberg to Entertainment Weekly. If I told the story of the American Revolution, I wouldn't want to start with the most famous battle. I'd want to start when it was just four guys in Smart. a room. The earliest spark of that seems dramatic Smart. and cool. That's a big part of the fun of it. The little backroom dealings, the first time you see it's possible to stand up to the Empire. They had this. Yeah. They had such a crisp, clear vision for it, and that's why the show feels so cohesive and fully realized. I think that that shift from Clone Wars is interesting to think about, too, because obviously, again, a lot of the same people were involved. They have soul-deep affection for yeah. Clone Wars, as we do. I think it's interesting to remind ourselves that the effort here was not just to make something that was of a piece but different from the movies, of a piece but different, certainly from the prequels, and right. Filoni has talked a lot about the personal touch rather than the politics, but also to make something different from Clone Wars. That, yes, Clone Wars, which we absolutely love, can feel almost too vast to wrap your arms around at times. For sure. And and there are, you're talking about, you know, Yoda is in it. Anakin yeah. Skywalker is in it. Obi-Wan is in it. There are certain narrative and character constraints that are just going to be part of telling that extremely sprawling galaxy-wide right. story. And they did an incredible job. With Rebels, there's an amount of freedom that was not there when they created Clone Wars. Even just the amount of time you're working with, obviously in any of these cases, you're still between movies and yes. you have to adhere to an origin point and an end point. But the what you're working with between Sith yeah. and A New Hope is just different than what you're working with between Attack of the Clones and Sith. Which do you like better? Clone Wars or Rebels? Which show? Oh, wow, this is great. I like Rebels better but it's close. I think Clone Wars is probably the more consistent show over time. Rebels, I think, has higher peaks. Clone Wars has, as I just said, it's, you know, Anakin's in it, Padme is in it, Yoda is in it. So you've got that immediate feeling of, I understand where we are, I understand these characters. Mm -hmm. Rebels, it took most of the first season for me to really warm yeah. up to it. yeah. Who's the villain? It was kind of like, is it the Grand Inquisitor uh -huh. or is it Grand Moff Tarkin? And it was that that kind of was still burbling. And it doesn't really kick into gear until the second season when you understand the chemistry that these characters have, some of the backstory that has brought them to this place, mm -hmm. and then start really understanding what they're facing against the backdrop of those stakes. That's when it really takes off. And I mm -hmm. think at its best, Rebels, to me, is a better show. But it's really close. Yeah, I think to me it's like the best favorite thing we used to talk about all yeah. the time with ranking our Harry Potter books. I think Rebels is a better show. Clone Wars is my favorite, but I love them both. It's a matter of degree, you know? 
and also probably mood. There might yeah. be a time in my life where I'm craving one more than the other. I think Rebels is tighter. Yeah. I agree with what you said. It takes a little while to kind of fully immerse yourself in it, get used to the characters, invest, understand the essence, the vibe, the tone, everything they're trying to do. From the beginning of season two on, it's almost perfect. Yeah. There are very few lulls. And I think that the highest points of Rebels are, and I, this is not hyperbolic. I really mean this. And I, I'm fairly certain you agree. The highest points of Rebels are in the running for the best things in oh, Star yeah. Wars. Period. So, Twilight of the Apprentice is as good as it gets in yeah. this universe. Period. Period. With Clone Wars, I am just so fond of yeah. those characters. Like, I just crave that time with Obi-Wan. And I, the other thing that I love so much, Clone Wars has lower lows because there will just be periods of battles that I don't care about as right. much. Or, uh, or they'll throw, like, a two-episode Jar Jar Binks arc into you know, the final season. I did season. love meeting <laughs> Queen Julia, I will say. The thing that I really do love about Clone Wars, in addition to the time with my handsome husband, Obi-Wan... <laughs> And filling in so much of the gap of the things that I have spent a lot of my life wondering about and wanting to better appreciate the mysticism in Clone Wars, mm. I really love. And that's, I think, when it's in Rebels, I respond to it really yeah. wholeheartedly. Like, for example, A World Between Worlds is one of my favorite episodes because you get some of that Clone Wars mythology injected into Rebels. But that's rare in Rebels. Yeah. So that's also one of the things that I find myself, like, drawn to Clone Wars for. Um, love them both. They're great. So that brew that makes Rebels so special translates into something, as we've said, that feels fresh but also familiar. And they were very aware of that fact because it was inherently a goal. As Filoni said to Slash Film in 2014, quote, this show is kind of just unapologetically classic in a Star Wars sense because we all want the fans to feel that this is going to be off on the right foot. You're going to recognize the music. You're going to recognize the look of things. I think there's going to be plenty of time in the future to get more aggressively different and exciting and develop new things in Star Wars you've never seen. And certainly they will do that. But here again, he's describing the beginning. But now is the time of just saying, like, hey, guys, this is going to be a great era for you. Just buckle up and get ready. And that's what I want. The show expands to connect characters and figures to events and places we're already familiar with. And it really strikes that balance perfectly, giving us a sense of the familiar. We understand this landscape. We understand this time in galactic history, but also something totally fresh allowing us to form new attachments to a whole new cast of characters and make new investments while also gaining some really crucial new insights into things that we thought we understood completely right. and in some cases, real closure. Anakin and Ahsoka. I mean, that is, again, Twilight of the Apprentice. <sighs> Amazing stuff. Stay tuned for more on that. And because of that, thematically, it achieves something, as we said, similar to Rogue One, though without that very hyper-concentrated sense of ever-present dread yeah. and doom because you just know that all the people you're investing <laughs> gonna in are going to die. You have that sensation with some of these people in yes. Rebels, but it's spread out. And by the time it hits with someone like Keenan, you have invested so fully that it's just an all-time agonizing blow. And the show casts a light on new key players. And in so doing, it reminds us of something crucial. It's not just Luke. It's not even just the Jedi. There are all of these people who are involved in this galactic-wide struggle. The galaxy is made up of all sorts of people fighting for all sorts of things. Sometimes when they unite, they can conquer an empire. That is obviously an important fantasy idea, and that is at the heart of the focus here. It's also a, a personal story yes, about very much so. a family, really. It's not necessarily a political one, which was absolutely deliberate. As Filoni told the LA Times' Patrick Kevin Day in 2014, quote, In Rebels, you'll be in scenarios where you hear things have taken place that are furthering the story, but you won't be watching these politics unfold. 
it's on a more human level. And the show is full of adventure, exploration, and real emotional resonance and stakes. Oh, my God. Full of revelations from the nature of the world between worlds, as we just talked about, the power of the Lothwolves, to altering our view of the number of Force sensitives living in the galaxy after Order 66. Huge. All that talk from Yoda to Luke about the weight he bore, well, as, as Filoni told Nerdist, after a screening of Jedi Knight, which is the Kanan Death episode. Yes. We've never really had all facts. Quote, people take every line as this complete doctrine, and that's absolutely not the case. <laughs> to try to believe, you have to then parse that line out and start dividing. Like, what does it mean even to be a Jedi? And does Yoda get to be the only person to define that? Thank you, Dave Filoni. I, I love that. <laughs> What he's saying is, you're the only person left, Luke, trained in the art of a Jedi and being a Jedi that is around right now the way that Obi-Wan and I taught people. Mm -hmm. I could take it that way, which is a nice way of thinking about it. You know, like that is just one specific school of thought about how to engage with the Force. And surely there are people who would never come into contact with a a Jedi, a trained Jedi. Yes, and I I just love so much that Rebels is interested in exploring something that has always seemed to be an inherent truth of Star Wars, that it never made sense that there wouldn't be more Force users Mm -hmm. out there. Of course there would. What do we hear time and time again? What is the Force? It's the energy that binds all things. What if we talked about whether it's George Lucas or someone in the universe talking about it? Anybody, anyone. we hear Kanan say it in Rebels, anyone can tap into the Force. Also, by the way, after Order 66, people didn't stop being born. Right. New they, Force users would yes, be born. And of course, absolutely. that's one of the roles that the Inquisitors will play Trying in Trying to suss out where those people are. Other Jedi would be out there. Other dark side practitioners would be out there. This show acknowledges what is just simply a reality, and it does so through new characters. Also, some familiar faces we'll get to in a second, but primarily through new characters. So... Let's talk briefly about the characters. We're going to spend a long time today talking about some of our favorite episodes and how these characters are at the center of those. We're going to go really quickly here. We would obviously love to spend hours and hours (laughs) and hours talking about Hera and Sabine and everyone else, but kind of a rapid fire rundown here of some of the main new players. We have to, of course, start with Ezra Bridger, our protagonist, voiced by Taylor Gray. This show is in many ways about Ezra. He is... Would you say he's the main character? He's the main character. I would also say that he is Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. An orphan who grows up not fully understanding why he can do the things he does until someone explains his powers to him. Yes. Then he is brought into the family that he ultimately will choose and love and embrace fully and help him unlock his potential. He will have to face the darkness and find a way to push through it in order to help save the world. And at the end, he will make a devastating sacrifice. And also, he can be a jerk sometimes, but has a heart of gold and jacks off a lot. I would add that in the series finale, he basically stands in front of the mirror of Erised, and then he sees events that he can't touch, sees his family. It's a great point. Then we have Kanan Jarrus, voiced by Freddie Prince Jr. Hell yeah. The more experienced, but also damaged in some way Jedi who feels maybe not up to the weight of wielding the force. Yes. And ha- is really hurt and traumatized by Order 66 and the things that happened at the end of the class. So we can talk for a minute here about Ezra and Kanan together because their stories are inextricable from each other. And what I love so much about Kanan, we talk a lot about the reluctant hero, the reluctant pupil. Rebels gives us a reluctant teacher. Yeah. 
Kanan does not want to do this at first. And and he doesn't feel like he has it. Exactly. He's been through trauma of his own, right. obviously. We'll learn over the course of the show. He's he's not even using his birth name, yeah. you know, the secret identity. Obviously, as we talked about a lot with Ahsoka and other characters, the life of a Jedi on the run after yeah. Order 66 is a, a special kind of fear and terror. But also, if you give in to your fear as a Jedi, well, we've heard a lot of speeches about what that leads to. And Kanan is very aware of the dark. And so when he sees Ezra, I, one of the things I love so much about Ezra's character is that he does feel the pull and the yeah. call of the dark quite often. There are moments where you can almost hear him speaking in Anakin's voice. His ability to push through that obviously makes him so much stronger. And you feel you feel a sense of pride. You really do feel a sense of pride. We've watched him grow up. And because you know the loss that he suffered, the heartache, and his you know, that that initial brashness comes off like he's just a, like a bratty kid, but he's lonely yeah. and he wants to find purpose and belonging. And when he does, it all unlocks for him, but it's never easy. I think about the episode where the ghost crew finds Rex and the rest of the old cloners in their like Great one. old tank that's just kind of like clomping across the surface of this planet. And the way that Kanan is immediately distrustful of them. It's like, you don't Wants understand. Wants nothing to do with them. You, you don't understand. They can't be trusted. You just be very careful around them. And that was like this window. And and then even the way when we were first introduced to Kanan as a force wielder, the response when he pulls out his lightsaber and how dangerous and anxiety-inducing that must be to, as far as he knows, be maybe the last Jedi in the galaxy hunted by the Empire. The second he pulls out his weapon... He becomes a target right. for vast forces that would seek to destroy him. And how does he carry that weapon? He detaches yep. it on his belt. He's afraid in yep. some ways of who he is and what his power means. And so one of the most rewarding parts of their master-apprentice relationship is that they do teach each other. Yeah. You know, Ezra would not have become Ezra without Kanan's influence, but the Kanan that we ended with on this show would not have been that Kanan either without Ezra or without Hera. They all teach each other so much. And the fact that it's not just Force users together on the ghost is a huge part it's of it huge. because there is essential perspective, often coming from Hera, but also from Sabine and Zeb and Chopper, of course. But let's talk about Hera next because <clears throat> she is so often the one Asking them to pause for a minute and think about not only why they're doing things, but why they feel the way they feel. She's like the heart and the moral center of this group. Yes. Cham's kid, your old buddy <laughs> and, and from as, Ryloth on and, Clone Wars. And as you would expect, it's Star Wars, has a complicated relationship with her family. And, you know, as the captain of the ghost, she has a responsibility that is in a lot of ways different than anyone else's. She is responsible for the lives of everyone yes. on that ship. She feels the weight yeah. of being in charge, voiced wonderfully by wonderfully. Vanessa Marshall. Mm. She's a source of wisdom, but also of vulnerability. She also experiences doubt, but her doubt is constantly paired with really almost unflappable conviction. She's in many ways, the truest believer in the cause of any of these characters, at mm. least at first. They all have backstories, reasons for being there that will reveal themselves over time. She's the one who, even though in some ways you learn the least about her until, of course, her father right. enters it in the history with her family, you kind of never question why she's doing this. You right. want to learn more, of course, but you feel so fully that she is living her life doing the thing that she wants to do. And she is the one, initially, 
not Kanan. She is the one who wants to bring Ezra into the fold, who realizes what this means and what this is about. Some of the most interesting conversations that happen in in Rebels often involve Hera, and they often are some kind of debate about the merits of direct action against the Empire in a given moment versus incrementalism, building alliances, care and careful planning. Right. And that is something that is possible because of Hera and the fact that she is responsible for all of these people. Great point. And you think of her as being in charge. You know, there's this interesting dynamic where Kanan is Spectre One. They all have their call signs. But it's unambiguously Hera's team. Yeah. And then when they are absorbed into Phoenix crew, and that creates a lot of tension at first in the group, the rebellion widens from that point on. There are moments where, you know, Bale and Mon Mothma, you can't be in this room. Right, you can't be The person who we've always thought of as being the one who is making the decisions, making the call. And that's a really fascinating way to think about how a battle like this would unfold. There's an aspect of Star Wars where you say the rebellion, anyone who could have joined in would have and would have had, you know, because it comes to us in two hours through Luke who went from being... From whining about not being able to go to Tashi Station to right. being the one who blows up the Death Star, it wasn't always easy to gain access. And to then you find people. out through or Rebels. To agree. And then you find out through Rebels and Rogue One and other stories, the Marvel, uh, Kieran Gillen's Marvel Star Wars comic, that there is a range of ideas about how best to take this fight to the Empire. Yes. Then we have Sabine Wren, just voiced an by absolute fucking fire. Tia Sirkar, shouts to the good place. Vicky from the good <laughs> Vicky place. From the good place. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and absolutely one of one kind of character. Such style, such flair, Part such of an energy. Artist, but uh. also fierce warrior. We've never really seen anything like Sabine Wren. Some of Sabine's graffiti would be a great, great fodder for tattoos. Mm-hmm. Just throwing it out there. Think about it and get back to me. She's a mystery to us for a long time. Yeah. You know, we learn about her involvement with the Empire. We're introduced to these bounty hunter connections that she has and this other life that she lived. It's not until Trials of the Dark Saber that you really learn about her family history. We're going to talk about that episode later. And that you see this more vulnerable side of Sabine. I think that's something that all of the characters share is that we know that in some level they are here because they couldn't be somewhere else any longer. That's a great point. And even if their specific experience is different, that is a unifying reality in their lives that forges the sense of harmony and belonging between them. I think you feel that a lot with Sabine because even when they're bumping with each other, fighting, there's a lot of like, you know, Zeb and Ezra wrestling, everyone right, right. yelling at a chopper, a lot of tension. The love and devotion that they have for each other is never in question. Then Gera Zeb, Zeb Aurelios. Your boy. Voiced by Stephen Bloom. Incredible. Uh, Zeb thought he was the last of his kind is just a wonderful, like, kind of the muscle, but with a huge beating heart. And just like a person who's the second that he sees someone mistreat one of his friends, Zeb is the person who is going to be in that, yes. that enemy's face. Yes. Will goad you, but is fiercely loyal. Again, this is true for all the characters, but I think Zeb unlocks this for us a lot. He makes a ton of mistakes. And I say that not in a judgmental fashion, but out of a position of love and affection, because you're reminded often that they don't really 
again, they're they're part of taking down the empire, but they don't really know what they're doing. They're yeah, they, completely uh, figuring it out as they go along. They don't know what they're doing. It's kind of like a team that was assembled by necessity. Yes. A lot of overlapping skills, and it takes them some time to figure out, okay, like, how do I contribute to this yes. grand mission? The North Star is the fact that they believe fully in the cause and what they're doing. The way they go about it is constantly evolving in organic fashion. We obviously have to talk about Chopper. I mean, you, how can you not talk about the Chopper? The ghost astromech. One of the great droids in Star Wars. Undeniably a top five droid in Star Wars history, maybe maybe a top three droid in Star Wars history. <laughs> incredibly great. He is absolutely tremendous. He's a real dick. He's you an know, asshole. He's a curmudgeon, cranky, yes. put Very together cranky. from spare parts. He has been through trauma of his own. You know, we learn in a really touching moment that Hera... She's the one who pulled him out mm. of this. They awful have a very, experience. Their very special beautiful. bond. Chopper is a badass. He's involved in the fights. When they finally He's get the- to Adelon, what do they name it? Chopper Base. I mean, yeah. his role in the rebellion is massive. He thinks for himself, doesn't always like to listen to orders. It rarely follows them to be 100%. <laughs> but he always finds a way to get the job done. Yes. Loyal, never lets anybody down. He- he's just a delight and he's so funny and quirky and he, he just has so much personality. He's His really relationship with AP5 is oh my God. some of the best it's comic relief. Incredible. In I love basically saying we need our version of 3PO and R2 but right. they're going to be like assholes. Totally complete assholes. And obviously 3PO can be an asshole but this is in a different way. Well, AP5, I mean, is like a Snape-like asshole oh, yeah. as we have said. Absolutely. We got to talk about Hello. Asian Callus, a.k.a. Hot Callus, a.k.a. my sort of embarrassing Rebels crush. <laughs> now, listen, you love, I'm... A, you love a guy. <laughs> you love a guy who either totally wiped out or partially wiped out a people. I love a redemption story. <laughs> I'm slightly mortified by the type that I seem to be developing over the course of Binge Mode Star Wars, but... Hey, he ends up with the good yeah, guys listen, at the end. Absolutely. He ends up on the right side of history. There's no question about Who's that. Who's he voiced by? David Oyelowo. That sexy, sultry tone, part of the Callus appeal. Sincerely, Callus is a hugely important part of the show. Obviously, an ISB agent, a villain early on in yes. the show's run. His journey from vicious foe to the guy Zeb puts his arm around at the end and welcomes to his new homeworld. Yeah, the, the, he's the like an astonishing achievement. shippers around the world to, to get, us, get to type in. But just to get us to believe in that is, yeah. is really remarkable. And, you know, it's 75 episodes, but they're 22-minute episodes. There's not a lot of time, and there are a lot of characters and places. Also, the places. I mean, that's the other thing yeah. is we're learning about Lothal. We're investing in Malachor, like all of these new locations in addition to the people. and. Callus is one of the best microcosms of the show's ability to bring you in fully to a new person and that person's arc and journey. And here's the other thing about Rebels. They do it with the creatures, too. And they do it in a big way with the creatures. Let's talk about your buddies. Space whales, the Purgle. Purgles. Well, first of all, here's the thing about the Purgle. What an incredible addition to the canon that completely expands our yes. uh, understanding of how. of how the Force works, of how hyperspace, hyperspace. travel works. 
Steve Bloom to IndieWire on the incorporation of these creatures. He said, quote, I love the nature aspects that you guys incorporate into this and the Purgle too. Amazing, beautiful creatures and their ability to jump into hyperspace too. Amazing. So many incredible elements that I didn't expect to see in this. And the Lothcats and all your posts will follow the white Lothcat and getting us Hell little yeah. clues along the way because it's just so beautifully orchestrated. I, I completely agree with that. Like the addition of the legend that it was potentially the Purgles that inspired sentient races mm-hmm. to pursue hyperspace technology mm-hmm. is just fascinating. And it brings into focus this idea that, wow, there's so many things that we kind of take for granted about how Star Wars works that mm-hmm. we don't really know about. And totally. there's so much space to explore. It's a wide canon, as they say. And then the loath wolves and all of the creatures, the loath cats. Right. Bats, rats, et cetera. But really, the, the cats, we get a lot of great experiences with, and they are guides for Ezra. The wolves, the dire wolves of Star Wars Rebels are really remarkable. Their connection to their planet, Lothal, and to the Force. Yeah, that's fascinating. Some stuff. of the best lore in the show. And then, as with any good storytelling, it works on multiple levels. It's something inherently interesting in its own right. Makes you curious about a new thing, but also helps you better understand an existing character. Ezra, who we often think of when we're introduced to him as shut off from connection. A lot of his early tutelage with Kanan centers on trying to connect with creatures. He is able, he is the one ultimately who is able to find these connections with all of these different creatures across the galaxy, but the Loth Wolves, who Kanan obviously connects to as well in very important fashion during his death arc, the Pergil, who Ezra will call back at the end in the finale uh, what to an thwart inc- Thrawn. And- what an incredible callback to the show in general. Like, just it, you're like, how are they going to get out of this in a way that allows yes. Thrawn to continue, maybe, and yes. allows, like, how, how does this finish in a way that doesn't break what we know about what's going to happen in the rest? Yes. And the Purgle being the thing is. I, I found amazing. that even as you watch Ezra in battle or using the Force in so many different ways, that this specifically, his connection to the natural world was the thing that for me best unlocked his prodigious skill as a Force user and what Completely really made agree. him special. And it's funny because Filoni cites this as something that he set up as a deliberate contrast. Great quote from the IndieWire interview. I brought nature into this more because I was always interested in the old movies. How nature seems to surprise Luke. (laughs) He doesn't see the Wampa coming. They get kind of tied up by a lot of things in nature, but you know they're, of course, a part of the Force because they're alive. They can't not be. And we feel that with Ezra. And then, speaking of the Force, Bendu. I mean... Just the best. We talk about Star Wars and its kind of unique balance of sci-fi and fantasy elements, and then Uh you get Bendu, which is seems taken out of fantasy central casting. Uh-huh. It's just an incredible source of wisdom and understanding about the Force. There's this exchange with Kanan shortly after they meet in season three, episode one, Steps into Shadow, part one after Kanan has been blinded. You carry conflict with you, Kanan Jarrus, Jedi Knight? It's this. <laughs> ah, interesting. Careful, it's... Dangerous. How so? It's a Sith holocron, a source of evil. My student's been using it, and I'm afraid it's changing him. An object cannot make you good or evil. The temptation of power, forbidden knowledge, even the desire to do good can lead some down that path. But only you can change yourself. And then Bendu's Thrawn prophecy. Yes! You cannot see. 
but I can. What? What do you see? I see your defeat. Like many arms surrounding you in a cold embrace. Just amazing. <laughs> uh, predicting what would happen to Thrawn. In the and then, you know, Bendu's fucking... smackdown of Thrawn and the Imperial forces is just like such a shock. It's the one amazing. thing that Thrawn could not have foreseen. I think that it's a great moment and an important one because it's a reminder that the force is not there for you to control. Right. The force is the force. And it is about whether you can tap into it and seek to enhance your own understanding of it. But it is not a weapon. It is a tool. And Bendu, he, again, Kanan is not just a teacher. He is a student as well. And and whether it is through his conversations with Kanan or through a smackdown of Thrawn like that or through something like Filoni revealing that there was this scene he he had crafted between Bendu and Ahsoka where they were going to have this following exchange. You were set on this confrontation then. I have to know the truth. This is, of course, heading off to face Vader to learn if it's Anakin. So be it. But understand this. Much will change as a result of this encounter, including you. He is this font of wisdom, but he never provides an answer outright. It is still something that you ultimately have to interpret on your own and apply to your own yeah. life as any great lesson is. And then we get some new villains. The Inquisitors, extremely important, especially in that first season. Uh, the Inquisitors were very often the, the direct foil to yes. Ghost Crew. New in canon, existed in Legends. Yes. They are Jedi hunters. They carry red blades. Either the Jedi who might have escaped Order 66 or, or new ones. newly born Jedi. The horrifying pursuit of infant force and, sensitives. And they are Woo! led by the skeleton-like Grand Inquisitor, voiced by Jason Isaacs. Kinberg to EW in 2014 said, quote, that was probably the most daunting part of this process. George obviously created the best villain of our time. And yeah, like part of why it takes Rebels a little time to get going is because you need that great, great villain. But like the Inquisitor is that thing you're looking for right away. Yeah, I think that they start to feel and again, kind of intentionally a little like they came out of a jello mold. Sure. Like, you know, once the Grand Inquisitor is beaten at the end of season one, we get the fifth brother. We get the seventh sister. We'll eventually meet the eighth brother as well, who was on Malachor to pursue Maul in Ahsoka's novel. We have the sixth brother, et cetera, et cetera. These characters are in Jedi Fallen Order. You know, this yeah. is a team that is deployed for a specific reason. And they were they were all light side users at a point in time and they were converted for this foul deed and this foul purpose. So there's a lot of interesting like intent at play there, but you you never quite find yourself investing in, in them as characters. I don't think they really are there as, as foils. Very, 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 very quickly, some of the other new characters who stand out that we don't have time to talk about them. We do the AP5. AP5, Robot Snape. <laughs> Just Incredible. lights up the screen every time he shows up. Yes. Uh, Governor Price of the Lothal sector. She sucks. Awful. Imperial Kate Blanchard die. And she, <laughs> Imperial Kate Blanchard. And she and she faces her death as you would expect with a scowl on her face. Oh yeah. Ruck, who just Bronze assassin. This fucking guy. Like hate him. Another like great assassin who gets his ass beat every single time. Love it. Fenrau. Yeah, our good friend. The protectors. Our good friend Lucius Varinus from Rome. <laughs> Ursa Ulrich and Tristan Wren, Clan Wren. Here's my take on Clan Wren. Sabine's family sucks. Yeah. I like her dad. Mom and brother, not Bro for me. Brother especially sucks. They Awful. all, yeah, they all. Uh, Ketsu Anyo. Sabine's 
former bounty hunter pal turned brief nemesis, then one of the many people who they are able to bring into the fold in some capacity into the rebellion in a way that almost seems inconceivable. And again, it's because they're not, you know, one of the marketing campaigns for season one of Rebels was really clever, these like imperial propaganda posters. And I love that because it's such a deliberate contrast. First of all, just look cool, but it's such a deliberate contrast to what actually unfolded in the show, where the crew of the ghost was never spewing propaganda. It was always, you either think this is worth it or you don't. And if you want to be with us, you will. And if not, we wish you well. You feel it with characters like that. Visago, of course, sometimes you need strange bedfellows. Definitely a strange bedfellow. Interesting accent. (laughs) Just a, they don't go to the gritty side that much, but... An interesting overlap with the kind of crime elements that are always existent in Star Wars yes, and that kind of playing the margins between the good and the evil. Absolutely. Uh, then we get Ryder Azadi comes in late in our story. One of the many Jock Jeffcoat presences in the wider Star Wars Jock canon. Jeffcoat. Clancy Brown. Pal of Ezra's parents, someone who helps unlock a little more of Ezra's backstory and history. And... So much of Rebels is concentrated on what is happening on Lothal and Ezra's connection yes. to that place. And as we hear Kanan and Hera talk about, well, they weren't from there like Ezra, but they were also drawn there. This sense that the force, that they are all there fighting for this common goal for a reason. But also, again, Lothal is just one of the many places where they spend time, even though their story begins and ends there. And then Commander Sato and his nephew, Mart, Important figures within Phoenix Squad connecting our ghost crew to the wider rebellion in a more direct, actionable way. Et cetera, et cetera. On the list goes. Let's quickly, very quickly talk about some of the established characters that we got a little more time with. Some of it is really, really brief. But one of the main ones, obviously, is Ahsoka. We talked about this at length in her character study pod. We're going to talk about some of the episodes that she plays a prominent role in later today. Obviously... The buildup to the Ahsoka fulcrum reveal is one of the things that everybody was anticipating and cared about the most. Mm-hmm. Her presence at the very end gives us, I think, all a shared agreement that we will return to this in the future. She and Vader and Anakin, who are next on this list, it's an amazing thing because I think most people would say that the Ahsoka-Anakin parts of Rebels are the single best thing in Rebels. We would say that. And it's a little dissonance-inducing, Because we just spent the better part of an hour talking about how the brilliance of the achievement here is allowing us to invest in these new characters and new places. Ahsoka and and Vader are not new, but that, again, is the kind of singular achievement of Rebels is the harmony. It's all operating in concert. They're doing both things at once. I I completely agree. I think it's a good distillation of the kind of way they've carried out their balance old and new philosophy. Yes, these are characters that we know, but the emotional terrain is completely new. Exactly. Imagine how you would react finding out that someone you loved and cared about who you thought died right. long ago is actually one of the most despicable and yes. vile people in the galaxy. And they played that moment just so well, like Ahsoka's revulsion, yes. such that she just passes out Despair. because she can't. She can't take it. We're going to talk about that a lot more later. The other key, I think, is that 
those moments never come at the expense of the new characters. Right. There's always synergy between those things. Couple other old friends. Obi-Wan, Hello. we're going to talk about his episode later on. He's not a big part of Rebels, but he is present in a meaningful way. How did you feel? Way. What did you think about him? Uh, white beard, looking you know, great. Again, the design of Clone Wars and Rebels is different, so I don't think they quite captured the handsomeness, but he still looks, <laughs> he still looks great. Wonderful, lush beard, twinkle in his eye. Yoda? I have some notes. This I is my this notes. is my one the hell is going this on. This is my one note on Star Wars Rebels. <laughs> what happened to Yoda? Why does he look like a liquid vest? Too much I, meditating. <laughs> he looks like Wallace Shawn, the longtime <laughs> partner of the writer Deborah Eisenberg. Catch him on Maisel. Probably best known as the wagering weirdo in The Princess Bride who's like, aha. <laughs> You obviously want me to drink the poison because you put the cup in front of me. But if you, why yes. does Yoda look like this man? I, spitting image, identical twins. It's bizarre. He has a weird, like, receding hairline. He all just of looks a sudden. too human. It's really strange. But his role ultimately yes. is as a guide through the Jedi Temple. And when he contacts Kanan, when he appears uh, as a voice to Kanan in the first trip to the Jedi Temple early on in the series, it's an amazing moment because you feel like that. Kanan has obviously been searching for some kind of guidance for so long and had given up. Ever. And a connection to the past that he actually lived through, not just something he's heard about. It's yes. not legend to him. It's real. It's just like a really great emotional beat. Amazing. Grand Admiral Thrawn, obviously, Woo! let's clarify here, new to canon. That's right. But we're, we're listening to him among old friends because he is an absolute titan of the EU. And it really seems as if they've quite consciously ported a lot of his yes. actual history from Legends. Jason is going to talk about Thrawn at length today in the Jedi Temple, but this was one of the characters when the EU was decanonized that people mourned the most. So bringing him into canon is... And he you keeps almost it, can't overstate how And he keeps it, it tight. Like, he's working out every day, several hours in the gym every day. He's- I would follow his exercise <laughs> Instagram. I'll say that. <laughs> he looks great. Maul, back with us, still fucking angry at Obi-Wan. I love Maul and Rebels because, again, we're going to talk about the Obi-Wan Maul episode later, so we we won't go into that here. But there's some incredibly potent thematic resonance to the conclusion of his arc. It's the limits of hatred. Absolutely. This is a person. And what that leads you to. This is a person who has been spinning his wheels for decades. Yes. What myopia can really do to you, the difference between purpose and obsession. And I also just, and this is kind of surprising to say, I just think he's hysterical. Yeah, he's, you know the way that he, he insists on, <laughs> insists on calling Ezra my apprentice, I know, and Ezra's like, on. "I'm not your apprentice." Like, and Kanan's like, "He's not your apprentice." Darth Maul, the ultimate reply guy out here. <laughs> it's just so funny. And then, of course, he's involved in a an absolutely pivotal moment in the series when yes. he blinds Kanan in their duel on Malakar. So, so Maul is is it's a concentrated number of episodes, but as usual, makes his impact felt and also. Sabine will steal the dark saber from yes. his lair. Captain Rex, this love is a my guy, big Rex. one. I love him. The clones being present in some capacity: Rex, Wolf, Gregor. Rex is the main one. His relationship with Ahsoka, a huge part of this, as you noted already. The ability to get Kanan to trust. Yeah. The clones turned during Order sixty six and wiped out the Jedi Order. In Kanan's mind, it's that simple. Of course. Rex didn't actually execute Order 66 because he had removed his inhibitor chip. 
And understanding how they feel about that history. Recognizing that they are human beings, that they were used. They even, he he even says in that first meeting, when they first encounter these clones, I don't want to talk about the war. What did all these men die for? What was it for? It's actually like incredibly poignant. And Rex's presence in this show allows you to really think about, again, the nature of agency, free will, the nature of individuality, and how people can ultimately push through their their biases and preconceived notions to find something real. It's, yeah. it's, it's really impressive. There's another great moment in that episode where uh, Ezra and Kanan leap onto the top of AT-AT and are cutting into it with their lightsabers. And Rex looks up and he's like, just like the old days. So that's the other thing is just like Ahsoka, he doesn't know what yeah. happened to Anakin. And it's pretty devastating because yeah. he talks about his time with Anakin. Those are his war stories. Yeah. Thinking back to how much he revered General Skywalker. It's pretty fucking gutting. Yeah. Next, Hondo. That fucking rapscallion. Back again. He's uh, among uh, the greatest injectors of comic relief <laughs> in Rebels. He is an absolute delight. He is. I hope that his crew is getting paid. Melch! <laughs> Great buddy comedy with Ezra and Hondo throughout the show. He's more aligned with the good guys in Rebels it, than he uh, had more been. More unambiguously in, a good yes, guy. Than the he Empire, had been in Clone Wars. Business has not been good under the Empire. Correct. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there's only one true ally for Hondo, and it's Hondo, which yes. is a lot of fun to watch. Your <laughs> personal favorite. Nice! Deception! Saw Gerrera, who was in rare form in Rebels, unafraid to. Voiced by Forrest Whitaker wonderfully and really dropping some true truth bombs on Mon Mothma and the and the Rebel Alliance even if you disagree with what he's doing and I how think could you not turns on I mean the the kyber crystal Listen. pursuit turns on Ezra and Sabine turns on I mean poor click clack out there on Geonosis <laughs> just wants to protect the, the queen Geonosis, egg the Geonosis stuff is tough I will say this so I think a bad guy who I, has been destroyed by what happened to Stila I think bad is too reductive I'll say this I think he played a crucial role, which is this. The rebellion, such that it was at that particular time, was in the business of kind of coalescing its strength, putting together logistics, yes. getting you know ships, getting fighters. But they needed to be seen to be doing something. There needed to be somebody who was like, I am fighting. I am actually going out there and directly fighting. Of course, the ghost crew was doing stuff, but they were doing stuff in the shadows a lot, a lot of the time. And I think it was important that saw, regardless of whether he was correctly uh-huh. attacking or saving certain resources, you know, blowing up a transponder when he should have been saving it, whatever the case. I think it was absolutely necessary that there be elements of the rebellion that were seen to be taking direct action against the empire, if for no other reason than to inspire other people to believe that they could fight the empire as well. I will counter with this. While I found the challenge to Mon Mothma important and compelling, I will say that much of the rest of Saw's actions are intended to remind us that there's a difference between freedom fighting and extremism and that when you've lost sight of the reason that you're fighting and you're just fighting to fight, this is what you become. There's a reason that when we see him in Rogue One, he has basically completely lost touch with his humanity. Again, I agree with that. I, I don't think that Saw beyond, like once the rebellion actually comes together, I don't think Saw has a role in the fight anymore. But I think his role in this nascent era is actually really important in your crew. And yeah, once the rebellion came together, we didn't need him. Hmm, terrorist. Couple, <laughs> couple other ones very, 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 very quickly here. Bo-Katan, who mm-hmm. Sabine will 
grant the dark saber so that Bo-Katan can unite the Mandalorians. Oh! Seems inevitable that hope we will be getting more hope she's alive. Bo-Katan history in The Mandalorian, given yeah. that Moff Gideon now is the dark saber. Wedgie Antilles! Love my Just guy. here kicking it as a teenager. Amazing stuff. <laughs> We already talked about Mom Mothma. Bail Organa is also present in this. Leia is even in an episode. Mm-hmm. R2 makes an appearance, 3PO. So the figures who you already think of as being the orchestrators and organizers of the rebellion, again, there's this connective tissue to them, but they are not the focus. Lando. Lando shows up for a handful of episodes. Just out there living the smuggler's life. We already mentioned Tarkin. And then Palpy makes a very limited number of appearances, but you really feel them when he's there. Yeah. His sequence in A World Between Worlds is just terrifying. And I think it's interesting to note, lastly here, that Filoni has said that the Death Star was originally part of the plan for, for Rebels, that they would be involved in this hunt to destroy this weapon. Two things happened. One, Rogue One was going to do that. And so yeah. it's just an interesting thing to consider in terms of the beginning of this Disney era where they were creating all these new things and those new things had to operate in concert with each other, but also where he just knew they knew that wasn't what they wanted to do again. Why just go back to Yavin? Yeah. Why just go back to the Death Star? You do. There's a lot of moments where you know the Death Star was just present somewhere right. or that they are in some way connecting to the construction of the Death Star. But this effort to focus on different things to give Rebels its own identity. Jason. Yes. I do not require glory. Hmm. Only results for my emperor and my producer. So please gather the Padawan learners. Head to the Jedi Temple. Teach us everything we need to know about my cut dude. He's cut. Grand Admiral Thrawn. Listen, he moves slow. Oh. But don't try and throw hands with him because he can throw. <laughs> yes. Grand Admiral Thrawn. Thrawn's legend is largely legends now from the legends canon. That's where most of the history of this character comes from. The character first appeared in Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire, the first book in the Thrawn trilogy from Iconic. 1991. We're going to concentrate on the current canon and the events that led up to his appearance in Star Wars Rebels. And the best way to catch up with Thrawn's backstory, I think, my personal opinion, is Marvel Comics' Star Wars Thrawn six-issue miniseries, which ran a year and a half ago and adapts Timothy Zahn's 2017 novel of the same name. I'm going to try here. Give it your best <laughs> effort here. Mithra Nuruodo. Mithra Nuruodo. Nuru Odo. Mithra Nuru Odo. Just call him Raw Dog. <laughs> better known by his sobriquet Thrawn or Raw, <laughs> to those who know him intimately, <laughs> is a formidable figure in the Imperial military machine, a brilliant strategist and tactician, an elite warrior, and a cunning and ruthless opponent. Thrawn overcame the Empire's innate anti alien biases and internal political battles with his many rivals within the military establishment to rise to the rank of commander, commodore, admiral, and finally grand admiral. This is the rank he holds at the peak of his career as the primary antagonist of Star Wars Rebels. But how did an alien rise to such a lofty place in the imperial hierarchy? Thrawn is a chiss, a race of human-like aliens with blue skin and red eyes who, as the chiss ascendancy, an autocratic government, rule a portion of the unknown regions beyond the outer rim of the Western galaxy. Thrawn was an officer in the Chiss Defense Fleet, 
tasked with scouting the unknown regions, Thrawn came to believe that dire threats lurked in the unmapped darkness. Guess he was right. He was right. <laughs> During the late stages of the Clone Wars, Thrawn was exploring an anomaly in the force on the planet Batu on the edge of the Outer Rim. There he made contact with Anakin Skywalker, who Hello. had come to Batu to investigate the disappearance of his secret wife, oh boy. Padme Amidala, who was herself going to investigate something that one of her handmaidens had found out there on the edge of the galaxy. Ever curious, Thrawn was eager to learn about the state of the galaxy and the ongoing Clone Wars. Anakin, alone in a strange and dangerous part of the galaxy, in turn needed help. And the two became unlikely allies, fighting side by side, along with Padme, who came to their aid as much as they came to hers. Thrawn was impressed by Skywalker's courage and prowess in battle, but thought, fairly, it would turn out that Anakin had a tendency to fly off half-cocked without considering the potential fallout from his decisions. Are Anakin Skywalker? I know, it's a crazy one. On the subject of the Republic itself, Thrawn was lukewarm. Democracy is, of course, by necessity, messy. A lot of voices out there needing to be heard. The Republic could barely keep its own house in order. How could it be a proper ally to the Chiss? Anakin, for his part, was impressed by the brilliant blue-skinned alien and upon returning to Coruscant, mentioned him to his buddy, Chief Palpatine, the future emperor. Way to go, Anakin. Years later, after the fall of the Republic and the rise of the Empire, the Chiss concerned more than ever about existential threats gathering in the unknown region sent Thrawn out on a mission. He was to make contact with the Empire and become part of its military leadership. And the goal was to either bring the Empire to the Chiss' side as a strong ally or to weaken it from within. If the threats from the unknown regions could not be defeated, then perhaps they would first pounce on a juicy Imperial prize buying the Chiss time to gather its strength. Thrawn would say, quote, there are things in this galaxy far more evil than the Empire and far more dangerous to all living beings. I sought out the Empire to discover if they would serve better as allies or as easier prey than my people. <laughs> Woo! To do this, Thrawn Woo! created a cover story. He set himself up on an unnamed planet in wild space where eventually Imperial forces, following the unknown alien protocols, investigated his camp and crashed ship. Quote, the encampment was designed to appear as if I had been abandoned by my fellow Chiss for years. In truth, I was only there a few months. The plan was to lure an Imperial ship to the planet, use my tactical skills to slip aboard and be taken to Coruscant. I hoped merely to persuade the Emperor to allow me to study the Empire's political and military structure. On that planet, Thrawn easily took down squads of Imperials, including squads of stormtroopers who were sent there to capture him. Eventually, he allowed himself to be taken prisoner. He was taken before Imperial Captain Park of the Star Destroyer Strike Fast, where Thrawn presented himself as an exiled former military officer with only a loose grasp of the language basic. And from there, he was taken to Coruscant to meet the Emperor. I am not merely a gift, Thrawn told the Emperor. I am also a resource. He would do well to utilize me. Positively Tyrion-esque speech there. Strong Tyrion vibes and rebels. Like everything from the way he speaks and the measured way he moves. Studying, Yes, always. always studying everything about his opponents. When asked in turn what he offered, Thrawn said, quote, there are threats lurking in the unknown regions that will someday find your empire. I am familiar with them. I offer my military skill to utilize in making plans to seek out and eliminate these dangers. All Thrawn asked is that when those threats materialize, the Empire in return for his service and skills would give the Chiss some consideration in the battle to come. Tell me, Palpatine asked, 
if you serve the empire, yet a threat rose against your people, where would your loyalties lie? If I were to serve the empire, you would command my allegiance. And to guarantee this, he said, quote, my word is my guarantee. Perhaps your servant can speak to the strength of that vow, realizing that this alien was the Mithra Neruodo that Anakin Skywalker had spoken glowingly of years earlier. The emperor agrees to allow him to serve the empire. Thrawn was admitted to the Royal Imperial Academy at the rank of lieutenant and placed on the fast track to either success or failure. Immediately, he faced several obstacles. Thrawn is a razor-sharp tactician, as we mentioned, able to place himself through deep cultural study into the minds of his opponents. But he could often fail to grasp a given situation's political landscape. In their quarters, Eli Vanto, Thrawn's translator and future aide-de-camp, laid out the issues that he would face at the academy. One. Some of Thrawn's fellow students would consider his immediate promotion to lieutenant as proof that he was the commandant of the academy's pet and therefore resent him for it. Two, another group would think of Thrawn as a failure who'd been sent back to school. <laughs> Quote, that group will treat you with complete contempt. And three, yet another group would consider Thrawn, quote, a test. Human bias against aliens, especially within the Empire, runs very, very deep. Cadets are always supposed to treat officers and at least officially alien emissaries with respect. Thrawn would ask Vanto, quote, so the test for cadets would be to see how creative they can be in their disrespect towards me? <laughs> Essentially, yes. Despite the speciesism of his fellow cadets and at least one violent attack against him and Cadet Vanto, Thrawn thrived. Two months into his stint at the academy, he was assigned along with Vanto to the cruiser Blood Crow as its second weapons officer. There, his ascent and his research continued. While fulfilling his duties, Thrawn also collected historical artifacts from the Clone Wars in order to further his understanding of the era. And within months, Thrawn was promoted to first weapons officer. Things got tougher when Felia Rossi became the new captain of the Blood Crow. Captain Rossi might have found Thrawn irritating and vaguely threatening in any case, but on top of that, she was just flat out prejudiced against aliens. And she took every opportunity to make Thrawn's life difficult. This was to have fateful consequences when Rossi tasked Thrawn with investigating a derelict freighter and retrieving its valuable, a very messy cargo of Tabana gas. We know of Tabana gas, of course, from Cloud City, which processes the resource. The ins and outs of what happened next is complex, but the bottom line is Thrawn, using a series of ruses and tightly planned gambits, saved his crew from the clutches of pirates, met an important insurgent leader named Night Swan, and despite being suspended by Captain Rossi, managed to discover the location of the freighter and obtain the valuable Tabana for the Empire. After these events, back on Coruscant, Imperial High Command had Thrawn brought up on a court-martial. Taking the advice of ISB Colonel Wolf Ularin, mm. Thrawn mingled with Coruscant's Imperial elite. Thrawn met many ministers and politicians and bureaucrats in this way, but among them, most notably, was Arinda Price, then an aide to the senator from Lothal, but soon to be, as we know from Rebels, the governor of the entire Lothal sector. Price offers Thrawn a deal. She offers to advise him politically if he will help her get rid of a rival by passing sensitive information to the ISB. Thrawn is noncommittal, but he offers Price some free tips. Quote, tell me, who does your high government official fear? I don't know that he fears anyone. Thrawn responds, then whom does he hate? All who hold positions of power fear or hate someone. Threat to your enemy means potential vectors of attack for you. Meanwhile, 
Thrawn had continued his investigation into Night Swan. The pirate's interest in a rare metal dunium and other clues led him to the realization that the market price on this and other substances like iridium suggested the Empire was engaging in a construction project of immense scale. Mm. What could it be? (laughs) Eventually, Thrawn was cleared of his court-martial and promoted to captain, and he was assigned to the light cruiser Thunder Wasp as its first officer. And once again, Thrawn found himself hauled before Imperial High Command, having to explain his ruthless and not-by-the-book handling of a border war on Sifar. But in a shocking but not really shocking twist, Rather than being reprimanded, Thrawn is promoted by Grand Moff Tarkin himself to Commodore and given his own command, the Imperial Star Destroyer Chimera. So numerous and stunning were his victories at the helm of the Chimera that he was soon promoted once again, and this time to Admiral. Uh Incredible stuff from Thrawn. (laughs) Arena Price, meanwhile, now the governor of Lothal, comes back into Thrawn's life during a debacle on the mining planet Bataan. The Creek Path Mine, an important source of dunium, has been seized by insurgents. Thrawn's tactics take the fighters down, but the mine and the populated areas around it are destroyed by a massive explosion caused by Price to cover up a murder which she committed in the course of rescuing her parents from the area. She offers Thrawn yet another deal. It seems that Lothal is having problems with separatists, Mm. you know, rebels. Worse, mm-hmm. these rebels are now operating in neighboring systems. They're spreading. Oh, boy. If Thrawn will come to Lothal and deal with these rebels and their ship, the Ghost, Price will see to it that the 7th Fleet is placed under his command. This time, Thrawn considers it. Soon after, on Coruscant, the Emperor anoints Thrawn Grand Admiral Thrawn of the Imperial Navy. Thrawn reveals that he's deduced the existence of the Death Star. The Emperor... Actually impressed, tells the Grand Admiral, don't worry about putting all our eggs into the super weapon basket. That super weapon will, by nature of its very existence, silence even the whisper of the word rebellion throughout the galaxy. And history would prove the Emperor wrong! Right. (laughs) And in that moment, the Emperor's henchman, Darth Vader, enters. I greet you, Lord Vader, Thrawn says. I am pleased we have finally met. As am I. Incredible. Dun, dun, dun! Incredible! Thrawn is dope. He's pretty great. As is the number of times in Rebels, someone is like, what could they be building that would require this much space? What could they be constructing in orbit? Thrawn just figures it out. He's like, hmm, seems like the, uh, the market for rare metals is going through the roof. Where's all this stuff going? Return we will after word from our sponsors. Binge on Star Wars is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you once. Like a fender bender. When you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of our 19,000 State Farm agents via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app. Find one today at statefarm.com. And now back to binge mode. Mel, I am no Jedi, but I am a podcaster, so let's roll like BB-8 through eight of the most essential Star Wars Rebels episodes and arcs lightning round style. Let's go! Number eight, Twin Sons, yes. season three, episode 20, the fateful final 
and brief yeah. confrontation <laughs> between Obi-Wan and Darth Maul with Kenobi killing Maul yeah. with ease yeah. on Tatooine. Incredible stuff. Obi-Wan is obviously not a main character in Star Wars Rebels, but he kind of looms as this presence in many respects. An ever-present reminder in Kanan's holocron of Order 66 and the message that went out after, a focus of remembrances from the pre-fall days, and of course, the source of Maul's unending obsession with the Jedi who bested him on Naboo all those years ago. The rivalry between them that fuels so many of Clone Wars' best moments and episodes, as we've talked about at length in that pod, remains president in Rebels, though it's exclusively from Maul's perspective until this episode, when modern day Silver Fox (laughs) Obi-Wan appears to us at last, emerging from his seclusion to face his nemesis. Obi didn't want to fight Maul again. He's way past this stage of his life. But he says to Ezra, I will mend this old wound. And when Maul probes his mind and identifies the truth, oh, you have a purpose here. (laughs) Perhaps you are protecting something. No, someone. (laughs) That's when Obi's face changes. He activates his lightsaber and gets into that iconic two-fingered stance. The duel itself... Some have criticized it as anticlimactic, though it is visually stunning. Maul kicking sand into the fire, blanketing the scene in an inky purple starlight. Obi-Wan parries Maul and kills him almost immediately after a few parries, slicing through his lightsaber and Maul's chest. Some criticize this as being a letdown. I thought it was perfect because it's like Maul is trapped in this cycle of hatred and revenge, you know? Exactly. To the final moment, the contrast in their demeanors and their choices took center stage. They've both hurt each other. Obi-Wan, of course, tough stuff for our guy Darth, cut Maul in half, costing him a standing as Palpatine's apprentice and forever altering his life. Maul, of course, killed Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan's master, and years later is an act of vengeance. Very tough stuff. The Duchess Satine. Awful. Obi-Wan's great love right in front of his eyes. They both have reason to be angry. But Maul is, again, trapped in that cycle. He's myopic. Obi-Wan, even after the hurt, is full of purpose and clarity. He feels pain, but he's not fueled by anger. Protecting Luke is his mission. He's let things go. This episode is thematically rich because Maul is undone by the very thing he harped on and perseverated over and believed would be the source of his strength. He's beaten down by his own greed, by his own inability to let go. Yes, to move on. And there's a fascinating moment as Maul is dying when Obi-Wan kind of holds him and props him up on his knee. And there's such pity there. I know. But also an acknowledgement of how deeply they have defined and affected each other's lives. Incredible power move by Obi-Wan Kenobi. (laughs) You won't look into my eyes. That will be the last thing you see. What a power move. Like, just... Complete empathy and pity yeah, for his such, enemy. Such pity. And Maul asks Kenobi, tell me, is he the chosen one? And Obi-Wan says, he is. To which Maul replies, he will avenge us. This is fascinating, thinking about how the chosen one prophecy yeah. hangs over all of Star Wars. And Obi-Wan, it appears here, believes that Luke will be the one to fulfill the chosen one role, which, of course, he will in a fashion by helping to pull his father, Anakin, back to the light. And speaking of Luke, 
we glimpse him at yeah. the end of this episode, this wild. tiny little speck running in answer to Baru's call along the Tatooine horizon. He's underneath the binary sunset that will, of course, call to him in A New Hope. And Obi-Wan is watching him from the distance, this great present, but also silent and distant protector. And it is just a fleeting moment, but it gives us such a newfound yes. appreciation for what the rest of Obi-Wan's life after Order 66 was like. And hopefully, of course, we will actually get to see more of this on the Obi-Wan Disney Plus show. Should it survive? They'll figure please, it out. Please, they will God. Think, they'll figure it out. <laughs> this episode, Twin Sons, takes place in the year 2 BBY, which means it's just mere years yeah. before Luke will heed the call to adventure. But this has been Obi-Wan's existence for all of this time, and it's all to protect Luke. That brings us to Ezra, yes. not just because he's another key figure quietly fighting to defeat the Empire, but because of something he tells Obi-Wan in this episode, that the holocrons told him Obi-Wan would help them defeat the Sith. This yes. will, of course, ultimately prove true. Obi-Wan will die in a new hope, but his care and sacrifice and instruction and inspiration will prove instrumental in positioning Luke to eventually reach Anakin and defeat Palpatine. Even though Ezra's involvement in this episode feels secondary, certainly, to the mm -hmm. Kenobi Maul climax, it's also notable that Ezra followed his instincts here. When everyone yes. in his life counseled him otherwise, warning him that Kenobi was dead, that Maul was tricking him, yep. which a uh, fair play. I mean, Maul sure. is always, it happens. Ezra went <laughs> out on his own anyway with Chopper. Chopper smuggling know. himself aboard. I love it. I don't remember foreshadowing his eventual choice yes. to take the solitary path in the series finale, if doing so meant protecting others, protecting his friends, and also reinforcing his connection to Obi-Wan, living a solitary Jedi life. It is definitely a different kind of episode than much of Rebels. And in many ways, you could argue that maybe it's less essential Star Wars Rebels than it is essential Star Wars, but ultimately it stands out for those reasons. It's this highly potent conclusion to one of the most iconic rivalries and storylines in Star Wars history. Wonderful stuff. Number seven, The Honorable Ones. Season two, episode 17, a.k.a. the Zeb Callus bonding episode, a true tide turner in the course of Zeb's arc. Yes. Callus's arc, and in some ways as a result of that, the war. Unlikely pairings are always a treat in Star Wars, and this is no exception with Agent Callus and Zep winding up stranded, and in Callus's case, injured on Bathrin, an ice moon of Geonosis. At this point in time, their sworn rivals haven't shown particular hatred for each other, even by rebel imperial standards. They're united in hatred by the fall of Lasan, which altered the lives of Zeb and his people. Genocides are very tough, and which to this point, Callus has boasted of <laughs> his crowning victory, <sighs> carrying a bow rifle he took from a thwarted foe. Tough look for my guy. Extremely tough look tough for my guy, Callus, here. Earlier in season two, Zeb led two surviving members of his race to Lirasan, the new home world for the Lasat, and found in doing so that there were more surviving members of his species there than he had known existed, than anyone had known existed. And that backdrop ultimately proves to be essential for, even if he doesn't kind of realize it consciously yet here, slightly 
ever so slightly softening him and us to Callus, who to this point had seemed like this true, proud, card-carrying believer in the cause, really as stiff and rigid as his hair and beard, odd beard. Very odd beard. It is an odd beard. It's very like... Wolverine, yeah, total Wolverine vibes. <laughs> I really enjoy when he grows out his hair, but the beard remains. And <laughs> though Callus will reveal some deeper truths about his past in the course of this episode, which we'll we'll talk about over the next few minutes, this is the episode that leads him to start questioning the Empire actively and the role that he is playing in it. In some ways, it's an utterly Star Warsian episode. Yes. Strange monsters, ice moons, escape pods, transponders species-specific weaponry. In others, it is universal. Two people, long opposed to each other, suddenly aligned against a common foe. In this case, the foe is the very real threat of imminent death, either from the Bonzami creatures in the cavern or their creeping cold. And these guys hate each other, but they're also really smart. They know they need each other to survive. And at certain points in the episode, as they seek out warmth, you almost wonder if they're going to choose to cuddle up and fend off the chill. We should note that the title is a reference to the 1958 film, The Defiant Ones, mm-hmm. starring Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier about two escaped convicts on the run from the law who are chained together and need each other to survive. One white, one black. During their very harrowing night together on this ice moon, they begin to realize that their understanding of each other is at least slightly flawed. Any very begrudging respect begins to bubble to the fore. They push each other and not just up the wall or up the pillars of this cavern. When Callus rebukes the notion that the Empire could have wiped out life on Geonosis and asks why the Imperials would do such a thing, Zeb's, well, that's a good question, retort clearly registers and leaves a mark. And one of the most potent moments comes when Zeb uses Callus's modified bow rifle to splint Callus's broken leg. And that rifle, of course, is a prime symbol of their division. The fall of Lasan, the decimation of a way of life, the appropriation of this Lasat symbol and speciality. But instead of taking it back, Zeb uses it to help make Callus stronger, an absolutely unthinkable act mere moments prior. And Callus ultimately repays that kindness with a massive reveal. He did not take the weapon as a trophy, as he had previously boasted and we had been led to believe. It was given to him by the guardsmen that he'd beaten, the sign of an honorable death and battle. And Callus, instead of boasting, says that he was just following orders, reveals his own prior trauma too, when a Lasat soldier working for Saw Guerrera, your boy, That's right. wiped out all of Callus's fellow soldiers on a mission. Good. On Onderon. Death to all ISB. And I <laughs> feel strongly about this. Are you listening, Moff Gideon? Later, Callus will reveal that he hadn't actually commanded the Lasat massacre, as he had previously said. Wow, stolen valor <laughs> from Callus. <laughs> They make it out of the cave together in a really jaw-dropping yes. action sequence, by the way, and fall asleep perched against each other. Great yeah. moment when they wake up and they're like, and they just get out of here. Wait. Love when it. the ghost arrives for Zeb and his whole family greets him, Callus looks really lonely Painful. here, but even before the ship's arrival, there was something really heartbreaking about the yes. way Zeb had been so certain the ghost would find him. And Callus had nothing like that. One of the show's great achievements is consistently finding new ways to remind us of the impact of having faith in the family you choose. And we not only feel that here with Zeb, but feel the absence in it for Callus, who's left alone on the ice, injured, unsure when the ghost takes Zeb away. He believes the Emperor will find him, yeah, 
but not because it wants to save his life. Right. Simply out of a desire to tie off all the loose ends. Yes. And the episode ends in really affecting fashion with Callus limping alone back in his chambers with nothing but that heat rock that Zeb had given him, which he has kept. No one missed him. No one cares at all that he's back. He tries to engage. Constantine is like, I got work to do. I'm busy. (laughs) He's just trying to hang out with his (laughs) imperial friends. And everybody's like, yeah, sorry. I can't right now. Targon is tearing my ass up. I can't do anything. (laughs) He's not a part of anything. He's starting to realize here the way that Zeb is. And it is the turning point in his life. The moment when, as we will later realize, he decides to turn spy and become Fulcrum, the rebel secret agent. And Callus eventually joins the rebels outright. And in the series epilogue, we will learn that Zeb took him to Lyrasan, where he not only realizes that he did not, in fact, annihilate the entire Lasat race, but that they have welcomed him as one of their own. Incredible. Wonderful. <laughs> Fucking, I oh mean, God. better race than me. Wow. The episode then is the, and pardon us for this, fulcrum. It is indeed. <laughs> for one of the most rewarding relationships in the show. Yes. A testament to the capacity to change and grow and forgive. And honestly, like yeah. a good basis for a spinoff. In Hell the wake yeah. of the finale, yes! with the shippers. Give us the callous Honestly, why not? Oh my God. With the shippers overjoyed at what the Zebulus yep. Keb <laughs> ending like might signify, Filoni told Gizmodo that he supports any interpretations fans may have. And they have. Sure do. They have those interpretations. He also spoke more broadly of how important this relationship was to him in terms of what it signified about compassion and perspective. I love this. Quote, some people I think earlier on were like, how could you ever forgive Callus for what happened? But you kind of have to go exactly how can he? Uh-huh. What does that mean? Isn't that amazing if he can? Right. Does the outcome have to be those two characters would destroy each other? Or is it more compelling Ooh. that they find this ground together and start this new life? What does that mean? So I think that's the more interesting, encouraging ending, frankly. What a wonderful, insightful it is wonderful. I think it helps that, you know, he didn't actually do the genocide. It's also just refreshing to, to have to grapple with that and to I, not I just agree. say, eh, it's I, fine, it's Star Wars. I think that why this turn works is you can feel Callus's regret. Oh, yeah. His real deep regret at, yes. at what happened yes. and, then and the all way of, it played out. All of the characters and the creators realize that that's a question you would be yeah. asking yourself. And, and essentially you having to live a lie where he's thought of as having done this thing and him living in a world where that's good. Right. And having to be like, yeah, I did that. And where he still holds himself responsible for what he thinks is this annihilation until he realizes otherwise. In the finale, Callus will tell Price, quote, the day I betrayed your empire, Governor, was the day I finally stopped betraying myself. He obviously made... It's a great line. line. (laughs) (laughs) And it looks good while he's saying it. He obviously made a ton of mistakes. He was not a perfect man and we are not excusing his past, but Zeb helped him believe that he could be better and find people who would help him try. That all started here in this episode on this ice moon. The Honorable Ones is a strong episode just from a plot and tension and storytelling perspective, but more than that, it is a testament to the show's ability to recognize the chemistry that develops among its characters and run fearlessly in a new direction to explore that. And it's also a, a really perfect microcosm of the show's true mission, showing how you can change yourself and those around you, and in so doing, maybe change the world. 
Number six, yeah. heat rock right here. Whew. Trials of the Dark Saber, season three, episode 15. Amazing. This episode has only grown in our estimation yeah. now that the Dark Saber has returned to Star Wars and the Mandalorian in the hands of Moff Gideon in 980Y. In this season three installment, we learn the weapon's history, an utterly unique role in the galaxy, which you can hear me talk about at length in our Mando season one mm-hmm. finale pod, Jedi Temple. While the tale of the Darksaber is riveting and the differently styled animations enthralling yeah. in a way that recalls the tale of the three brothers from Deathly Hallows Part 1, the episode is rich in many other ways. It's not just about a blade. Right. It's about what it means to a culture. It's about the wielder who holds it, the people who revere it, and what we really forge alongside a given weapon in our hands. That history is recounted here by Fen Rao of the Protectors to Kanan after Sabine retrieved the weapon from Maul's lair on Dathomir previously in Season 3, Episode 11, Visions and Voices, another very cool episode. We, of course, had previously seen it in Clone Wars, where Jason's dude Previsla wields it. Why is he my dude? Ultimately <laughs> poorly, and then Maul wields it, in his case, using it to kill Satine. Despite the horrors that the Darksaber has inflicted, it remains this iconically cool Star Wars cool. weapon. There's a lot of dissonance that fans have where you know what this thing did and the pain it brought, but you're also like, holy shit, the Darksaber! It it's amazing! The Thousand-Year-Old Blade is also a powerful symbol of Mandalorian might and unity. And the next episode in the season, Legacy of Mandalore, will take us to Sabine's family, Clan Wren, in an effort to recruit them to the rebel cause. And the question of why Sabine is here on the ghost and not with her birth family has been an open one since Rebels started. And in Trials of the Darksaber, we begin to finally learn about Sabine's past and understand this history. Though some specific reveals like Sabine's role in crafting the arc pulse tough, generator. Tough, extremely tough look what? for our girl. <laughs> Which in essence turns the Mandalorian's greatest strength, their Beskar armor into a, a hot pot. Crippling <laughs> deadly weakness that Cooksy in the armor, essentially. <laughs> very rough. It's very, very rough. That, Good job, Sabine, I guess. Like, she has a lot of regret. That specific exploration is still to come down the road, but the depths of her estrangement from her family really begin to crystallize here. Rao wants Sabine to lead. Yes. Sabine wants someone else to. The Darksaber brought her people pain when Maul wielded it, and as Ezra is quick to remind her, she's not a Force user. It's a fascinating episode for considering the nature of leadership. Can you yes. lead effectively if it's thrust upon you? The reluctant leader idea has always appealed to us. Love it. And eventually, Sabine will rise to the call, but in her own inimitable way, using her position to grant the blade to another, Bo-Katan, sister of Satine Cruz. Woo! Here, in this episode, the tension between Kanan and Sabine early on in her training is really stunning. And Hera actually accuses Kanan of failing to give Sabine the same treatment that he gave Ezra, failing to fully believe in her because she's not a Jedi, because she's not a Force user. And in a really lovely moment, he reminds Hera and us that anyone can tap into the Force, that it is there for all of us. But he is undoubtedly frustrated with his pupil, and she is frustrated with him in turn. Kanan is, of course, frustrated with his own lot in life right now, struggling to process 
his new state of being. And when Fen Rao brings Sabine a Mandalorian Vambrace, the iconic Mandalorian wristbands that are packed, chock full of weapons that are specifically crafted to counter a Jedi's many abilities, Sabine gets cute with her new toys and Kanan kind of loses it on her, reminds her, hey, the Jedi won that war, by the way. And it, it's like a pretty chilling moment, not only because of what it represents for their relationship and that moment point. in time, but for a reminder of how deep these ties go between all of these people and all of these different camps and how bloody Mandalore's history really is. I got to tell you, I love Sabine. A little whiny during this period of time. <laughs> There's a lot of angst. Yeah. Season three of Rebels is a... I mean, really, Rebels at large is very angsty. But it, I think it's extremely angsty. The same way that we feel that the angst that Harry oozes in Order of the Phoenix feels very true to life, all of their angst here feels very earned and right. When they switch from sticks to live weapons, per Hera's nudge, of course, and we get that early Arya Sirio kind of vibe. The blade is heavy, but ah, yeah. can you drop out of your arm? <laughs> I love and then it. they go at it frantically, ferociously, recklessly. It is electric and Really alarming as they fight Sabine's connection to the blade grows. The force flowing through it and her, the blade all of a sudden becomes lighter, Mm -hmm. feels more natural in her hand, and the energy that binds all things intensifies. It's really great to witness. You're not fighting me, Kanan tells her. You're fighting yourself and losing. (laughs) It's a powerful moment, one made all the more awe-inspiring by his ensuing taunts. You should quit! You did run, didn't you? Efforts to push her to realize the potential that she has, but also to acknowledge her pain. Yes. And finally, a confession pours out of Sabine about her past with the Empire and her role in crafting dangerous imperial tech, tech specifically used against her own people. When she spoke out, her family abandoned her. It's as raw and vulnerable as we've seen Sabine be to this point, yes. but it's met with compassion and acceptance and love and encouragement from Kanan and Ezra and Rao, her new family. This family, Kanan says, will stand by you no matter what you choose. Wonderful. It's an episode that's very rich in lore for Mandalore and character development for yes. Sabine in particular. Bonds are tested on all sides. We see something new from Sabine and from Kanan too, really, and it is a Really satisfying information download because of how much we learn, but it's also an episode full of heart with all aspects of Sabine's character coalescing for us at last. And her fragility and her strength, her fear and her courage, her hesitancy and her perseverance, all of these contradictions that make a person a person, all emerging further as these crucial factors, not only for the Mandalorians and the Rebels, but for the galaxy as a whole. It's awesome. Number five. Through Imperial Eyes, man, season three is a banger. Basically, once season two starts, it's just season two all the way to the end is just a sprint. (laughs) Season three, episode 17. Hell yeah. Another callous episode. This is so good. This is the episode where Mallory fully gave in to her. (laughs) I find callous attractive instincts. I can't help it. Though, while our, our boy. Hot callous shines. His heart wants what it wants. And boldness on full display. This is in many ways a Thrawn episode. Yes. A showcase for his ingenuity, his cunning, his observational mastery, yes. his razor sharp deductive reasoning. Yes. All of the qualities that make him a formidable and fear inducing foe. Yes. We open 
quite literally by looking through Callus's eyes, through Imperial eyes, and it is an effective perspective shift orienting us to his reality, how he sees the world, what he has to contend with every day. We will also, of course, see through, not directly through Thrawn's eyes, but gain insight into his perspective throughout the entire episode. And this affects us differently than it would have for Callus, where Callus is concerned earlier in the show's run. But in season three, episode 10, Callus reveals himself to us and the Spectres as Fulcrum. So now we see the risk, yes. but also the opportunity, the bounty of intel, but also the danger that's waiting around every glistening, shiny Imperial bend. Ezra Chopper and AP5 <laughs> have smuggled themselves aboard the Imperial light cruiser to tip Callus off to the Empire, intercepting Fulcrum's last transmission. His cover might very well be blown. And that's the premise for the episode. Yes. So the ensuing events all unspool with the audience and the characters on pins and needles. Wonderful suspense generated by this episode. Amazing. Ezra and Chopper are in typical rare form. And AP5 adds some signature Snape-like drawl to the <laughs> proceedings. It is a wonderful mix of characters. Thrawn, we learn, has called upon another ISB agent, Callus's former instructor, Colonel Ularin, to help smoke out the spy, his methodical approach is on display all episode, including his sparring session with his DT sentry droids. Amazing. Shirtless Thrawn, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Rocking a tank top. <laughs> Shut off override code. <laughs> nice teaser for this one day assassin. Yes. The rebels, of course, risked quite a bit to come warn Callus, and they did for him what no one had before, showed that they cared or trying to and willing to protect him. And they did so even if they are not all convinced yet. Not all sure that they should really trust him. Ezra, for one, isn't. He's still wondering if Callus might be playing them, and he won't give him, at a key point in the episode, Chopper Base's location so that Callus can go delete what we know as Adelon from Thrawn's database, all of which leads to our crew needing to sneak into Thrawn's office <laughs> together, <laughs> leading to an Absolutely riveting high-tension sequence in which Ezra and Chopper ultimately have to hide behind the bit of yeah, the retaining wall featuring Sabine's graffiti art that Thrawn keeps. Beautiful, by the way, a beautiful piece He's of artwork wonderful. featuring... He's an admirer of her style. He loves yeah, art in general. He loves art in general. <laughs> and Catless needing to sneakily turn Thrawn's sentries against him, reprogram them. I want a Thrawn spinoff where he just talks about like Banksy and street art. <laughs> Amazing. He's given it all up to live in like a downtown New York off Prince Street in a loft. And he just collects, man. He's just out there like looking at graffiti on the sides of buildings. I see him in London, not New York, because, you know, famously free entry into, right. into most of the museums there. You know, I could see him living in... Bloomsbury near the British Museum, heading in whenever he wants to check on the marbles. <laughs> <laughs> Popping down to Trafalgar Square and the portrait gallery how when quickly, he needs to change a pace. How quickly would Thrawn figure out Banksy's identity? Oh, I mean, I give it 12 episodes of Rebels. <laughs> <laughs> that effort means something to Callus, even though he decides to say he's staying not yeah. because he's not ready to leave the Empire, but because he believes staying will allow him to best help the Rebellion. Similarly, Thrawn figures out 
that Ezra was the bounty hunter and Callus the spy, in large part because of Sabine's artwork on the helmet Ezra wore it. It's really like- Ezra, what are you it, doing here? It, it's just really a great sequence that puts all of Thrawn's formidable powers on display. It's incredible. The closing moments hinge on a reveal that Thrawn knows Fulcrum is really callous, not the recently arrested and very confused Lieutenant List. has no idea what's happening. <laughs> it's like he told me it was price. That puts the bow on a really perfect Thrawn episode as Callus has decided to stay for going Ezra's rescue attempt, believing that he can maintain his cover after the arrest. Thrawn announces that he's going to make Fulcrum work for him way better than Callus ever did. And it is a real seesaw from the relief of thinking that they got away with this to the oh shit sensation when you realize that they didn't. Though, interestingly, as a viewer, you respect Thrawn so much at this point that you you really never doubt that he's going to figure it out. Oh, yeah. Never. The episode is, as so much of the series is, about growth, callous, trust, Ezra, and tactics and strategy. Thrawn. Yes. A special Star Wars Rebels brew. It's also a showcase of the show's commitment to continue to reinvent. You'll yeah. notice that this top eight of, of ours features a lot of different episodes, styles, genres, protagonists. Mm-hmm. It'd be very easy to ID eight amazing episodes that focus on Ezra or Kanan or someone else from the ghost. Yes. But episodes like Through Imperial Eyes, balanced with the primary ghost crew through line, gives Rebels its capacity for such surprise and depth and flexibility. Yes. There are so many threads at play yes. in this episode, and every one of them matters, from Lys' code cylinder to Callus's price seed planning to the narrowed-down star map in Thrawn's office. He is about to find out where they are. There's extra tension all the while because of whether Chopper will be able to get the new codes from an officer's port to Kanan and Rex for the rescue attempt now that they're on a different ship than they thought they were going to be on. The brew is a... Perfect little microcosm of what Rebels does so well, showing all sides of the conflict, never just focusing on the good, allowing us to really get to know all parties involved and then form our own judgments about Mm. who these people are based on actions, not just labels. Number four. Number four, two-parter, Siege of Lothal Part 1, Siege of Lothal Part 2, Season 2, Episodes 1 and 2. Season 2 really starting with an absolute bang. Season one of Rebels is good, charming, essential character establishment, world building, especially for uh, getting to know Lothal and kind of like setting the stakes for the wider story. But season two, it just goes to another level immediately with these episodes soaring tone setters in their own right. And also an essential bookend episodes for the Vader Ahsoka centric two episode finale arc that closes season two. And is still to come, as you would guess on this list. <laughs> yes. Vader on Lothal. Vader summoned to deal with the rebels who've bested the Empire time and again to this point. Kanan, dueling Vader. He's brave and willing, but he is dwarfed in yes. stature and skill alike. Ezra, tiny little Ezra, who only learned in season one that he was a Jedi, fashioned his lightsaber mere episodes ago fearlessly battling a figure who he cannot properly appreciate yet and thus does not know enough to fear. It is unbelievable to see Vader in action again here. He is relentless, aggressive, unmatched in nearly every respect, which again sets the stage so brilliantly for the season two finale because Ahsoka will be able to match him. James Earl Jones, 
voices him here. So dope. And there's something about the way that Rebels chooses to present Vader visually, to always position him, that never stops being chill-inducing no matter how many times you watch these episodes. He towers. He is huge. He looms. The scenes are all positioned to emphasize that heft, not only in his physicality, but in his skill and his ferocity. This arc is designed to generate unambiguous fear of Darth Vader. It's the same energy that Vader has at the end of Rogue One as as just a figure who is hell unleashed, who will cut through everything you throw at him, who is unstoppable. And that's thrilling to see. But it's also sad in the sense that we know how he's come to this. He's terror given form. And yet, even as he's unleashing horrors to try to squelch the Lothal rebellion and to bend the planet to the Empire's will, there are reminders of the man, Anakin, buried deep beneath the armor. His pilot skills are on display in these episodes, reminding us forcefully of Anakin's prodigious talent and who Darth Vader used to be. And of course, he and Ahsoka interact here. The arc comes on the heels of the events of the season one finale, Fire Across the Galaxy, which included the Grand Inquisitor's death and Ahsoka's reveal as Fulcrum. In the Siege of Lothal, the sequence in which Ahsoka and Vader Mm. sense each other during the aerial battle is really an all-time Star Wars moment. Gives you chills. As we talked about during our Ahsoka character study, Ahsoka did not know that Anakin turned, that he fell to the dark side, that he became Vader. Didn't know anything about what befell him after Order 66. And she is so overwhelmed and disturbed by the recognition that she feels here, that familiarity of her former master and friend inside this fearsome Sith Lord casing, that she loses consciousness. We see her eyes go wide right before that. And it takes her ultimately the entire season until their duel on Malachar to accept this, that Vader really is Anakin. Her mind rejects the knowledge here. But this is where she begins to confront reality. And Vader, meanwhile, knows without a shadow of a doubt that he just sensed Ahsoka, telling Palpatine. I believe the apprentice of Anakin Skywalker lives and is in league with these rebels. Are you certain? It was her. This is an opportunity we cannot let pass. Skywalker's apprentice could lead us to other lost Jedi. Such as Kenobi. Beyond the Vader-centric thrills, it's a wonderfully graceful two-episode arc for bringing the main focus of Rebels, the Ghost Crew, into the wider struggle. Yes. Kanan and Hera do not initially see eye-to-eye on this, and their debates about the nature of resistance and how to fight the fight are very philosophical and stimulating and carry on throughout the series and are really interesting to think about. Yeah. What's the right way to proceed? Do numbers or the purity of vision matter more? Star Wars doesn't always allow its characters to pause to consider these matters, but here they they get to do that. Ultimately, they join the fold. Phoenix Squadron, unite! Yes! These are the episodes where our friends leave behind the days of Lothal as their primary home, though obviously not forever, they will return. And Star Wars Rebels really begins to connect to the wider story, the organization of the Rebel Alliance as it coalesces into a fighting force. That it does with a nice little added Lando bonus. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Without ever compromising the unique identity of the Spectre crew, it's one of the show's singular achievements. Would you say it's the Order of the Phoenix? Yeah, I would. Number three. 
steps into shadow part one and steps into shadow part two. Season three, episodes one and two. Having to follow the two-part season two finale is not an enviable task. And yet, the two-part season three opener, which actually aired together, manages to astound in its own right. Time has passed since the events on Malachar, and we find our heroes quite changed by the trauma that they suffered. Let's start with Dark Ezra. Our dude. I looked at it as like Ezra spent the summer like reading 8chan and like getting (laughs) sucked into like bad memes. Kind of. (laughs) Via the hologram. He has always felt the pull of the dark and struggled to master his anger because of the things that happened to his family. But these episodes really showcase how the events on Malcor could have led Ezra down the path to the dark side if his friends hadn't been able to pull him back and he hadn't been able to process his own grief and guilt in a more positive way. Ezra is different in so many ways at the start of season three. He's shorn off his once long free hair. He's growing up. He's armed with a new lightsaber after his first blaster blue saber combo was destroyed in season two. I love good, that thing. I don't know. Good riddance. It was too blocky and weird. <laughs> I liked how unique it was. It was like, it was unique. It was so authentically him. That's, I mean, as Kanan says. Yeah. <laughs> This one is green, but Ezra's hair and lightsaber aren't the only new things about him. He's displaying new powers, new skills, some of which come from his continued development, some of which alarming, you realize. (laughs) He is learning from the Sith Holocron. I like how he looks over at the Holocron as like the porn stash that he doesn't want. It really is like he's on private browsing (laughs) with the Sith Holocron. (laughs) Ezra, we realize, not only kept the Sith Holocron, but is turning to it for guidance, and it speaks to him, wooing him, corrupting him. They never would have succeeded without me. He shouts at it with real, he's holding me back, Anakin energy there. Don't they know that? Your anger gives you strength, the holocron responds, gives you focus. You can see things clearly. Your friends cannot. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Where have we heard this all before? It might as well be Palpatine calling out to him. And the red light plays across his eyes, really exacerbating this effect and our very real fear of what fate might await him. But he's in this spot in part because of a chasm that is open between him and Kanan since Kanan's accident and all of the events on Malachar. Ezra is angry and ashamed. He feels responsible for what happened to Kanan. And Kanan does not blame him, which he will eventually tell him. Hera had to, of course, tell him to do that, as always. Yes, But he's also been transformed by what happened at the Sith Temple and in the duel with Maul that blinded him. He has receded fully into himself, wallowing in despair, distancing himself from the group and his pupil. As he wanders on Adelon, he finds Bendu. Hell yeah. A wondrous. Just tremendous. New character introduced to us here who represents the center of the force between Ashla, the light side, and Bogan, the dark side. His wisdom will not always be easy for Kanan and others to hear, but in... Very, very, very limited time. He plays a pivotal role in opening their minds to the nature of the Force and their roles as Force wielders and beings. Here, as Kanan struggles to accept the loss of his eyesight, Bendu tries to help Kanan gain new perspective. You believe that? Bendu says as Kanan laments Bendu destroying the probe that he believes keeps the Etalonian spiders at bay. But you must learn to see things differently now. Great, Bendu. Thank you. Look, I can't see anything. Not anymore. No. You are unwilling. Are you saying there's a way to restore my vision? Your sight cannot be healed. But I can teach you to see. 
if you are willing. Just really tremendous, like never ending story kind of fairy tale of, vibe. Thought to of never ending story a lot with yeah. Bendu, but also like real three eyed raven. Just wonderful character. You will fly. I love vibes with I that love line. Love Bendu. I'm gonna scratch a little her chin. <laughs> Bendu's ability to help the characters and the viewers open our minds and our hearts and appreciate anew the nature of the Force is really remarkable and rewarding. And so is Kanan's journey. The very relatable reminder here that even teachers, even masters, even those we often look to for guidance still sometimes need to learn themselves. People are not perfect. And at all stages in life, we need comfort and we need help. We need a guiding hand. But there is no comfort here when it comes to the threat of the empire established in newly alarming fashion with the arrival of the Seventh Fleet and Grand Admiral Thrawn's highly anticipated introduction. One of the primary plot drivers in these two episodes hinges on Ezra busting Hondo out of prison and then using Hondo's intel to try to swipe a slew of Y-wings that are about to be destroyed. An amazing ship from Hondo as always. The mission shockingly goes poorly. Can't believe it. Are you telling me a mission with Hondo involved has gone sideways? Classic bad Hondo intel paired with Ezra being reckless. And Ezra is eventually suspended by Hera for his recklessness here, losing the Phantom, nearly losing his own life, endangering his crew members. Thrawn could have crushed the foe here, but he chose to let them escape because he recognizes that this is not the rebel fleet, just a taste of the meal uh-huh. he intends to eventually devour. And it's such a miraculous way to introduce Thrawn into new canon, showcasing Incredible. the unusual patience and meticulousness that he has, his outside-the-box thinking. He does not think like any of the other Imperial commanders yes. we've ever experienced before. He doesn't just hunt. He immerses himself in his opponent. He studies them. Despite the valleys our characters find themselves in for most of the two episodes, it ends on an emotional high note with Ezra and Kanan again finding common ground. Kanan has taken the holocron away and given it to Bendu, though they'll need to fetch it again in the following episode. The also enthralling the holocrons of fate when Maul and Ezra unite the holocrons and begin to glimpse the truth they should not see. Here, Ezra reaches out to Kanan. I wanted to thank you for coming back. I'll always come back. I know. A very touching moment and gutting upon a rewatch with yeah. Kanan's eventual death front of mind. I found like the very like sad. Ezra's dalliance with the dark side really thrilling, even if in the end nothing that much comes of it, but it feels really dangerous in these episodes. Oh yeah, hugely so. Who knows? Who knows what he found out there? That's true. Out there with Thrawn. Just hey, just <laughs> chilling with Thrawn talking about street art. <laughs> Number two, Jedi Knight, Doom, Wolves in a Door, and A World Between Worlds. Season four, episodes 10, 11, 12, and 13, a.k.a. the four-episode Kanan death arc. And really the most emotionally gutting stretch of Star Wars Rebels. Much of season four is about Kanan and the Force connection with the Loth Wolves, who are introduced to us and Ezra in the flash earlier in season four. Lothal, mortality, sacrifice, a lot of these big ideas. Plenty of that comes before these episodes, and plenty will also come after that connects to it. But these four episodes still really feel like they are particularly of a piece and united by sacrifice and tragedy and grief. 
The first episode in this arc is Jedi Knight. This is the episode in which Kanan dies to protect his friends. And his death scene is certainly one of the most wrenching in Rebels and one of the most wrenching in all of Star Wars, even if you kind of saw it coming. Much like you enter into the prequels knowing you're going to see Anakin become Vader, you know you're going to see Kanan die or otherwise disappear from the fight as Ezra eventually will and Ahsoka does over the course of the show because he is not present in A New Hope in the right. original trilogy. But nothing softens the blow of actually seeing it, seeing how it happens. The fireball from Price's attack on the fuel depot kill shot engulfing Kanan as he, in his last moments, pushes his friends away from yeah. the conflagration. He initially uses the force to protect his friends from the flames, but in that last moment just decides, I will now sacrifice myself to yes. make sure my friends are safe. Pushes and them it away. It's just a heart-wrenching <gasps> moment that sums up everything about that character and all of the ghost crew's relationship to each other. It's devastating. And the shock and grief on their faces, Hera and Ezra and Sabine, as they are watching Kanan make this sacrifice, the dismay in Ezra's voice later when he gets back to base and tells yeah. Zeb what happened. The This moment is perfect. That pure, just uncomplicated love in every particle of Chopper's being when he reaches out with his little arm yeah. and grabs Hera's hand and just stands there next to her as she mourns. It all reflects our despair. But it's even more complicated than pure grief, because it's clear from the beginning of Jedi Knight, and in many ways even earlier than that, that Kanan knows he is going to die. You know, the episode opens with all of these voices, many of which are from the future that have not actually occurred yet at that point. Kanan has, of course, never been afraid to sacrifice or to sacrifice his life. He has lost a lot, including his master, his original name. But the episode opens with Kanan seeming to embrace what's to come in, in an almost ritualistic way. And then if he embraces it in the will of the force, he can save the people closest to him. And it's made particularly gunning because it's preceded not only by continued breakthroughs and understandings for him and for Ezra, but by emotional breakthroughs of yes. an entirely different sort yep. with him and Hera. And these things have been bubbling for yeah. a while. And there are things that the, you know, as the audience, you just wanted to see happen. Since the moment we meet them, it's very clear that they feel very strongly mm -hmm. towards each other. But as his death nears, Kanan focuses so fully on conveying yes, this. On crystallizing that. To Hera. And here, as he rescues her from Price's clutches, returning her calicory to her in the process, she shares her feelings as well, first telling him that, she doesn't like his new hair. It's great stuff. Under the under the, the truth serum. under the influence of truth serum, <laughs> which he has uh, sheared off again ritualistically at the beginning of the episode, almost as though he's preparing for this yep. thing, and then that she loves him, and then he's gone. Yeah, and it's sudden. When in the finale we realize that Hera and Kanan actually consummated their love, created a child, Jason yep. Syndulla, a name that's a nod, Filoni has said, to the importance that Jason Solo holds for fans yep. in Legends canon, we understand definitely what had been intuitive. Hera and Kanan were already together. Yes. They were a solid couple and they had been intimate. But really embracing that love and accepting it and speaking it 
was an altogether new level of vulnerability and was a whole different side of their relationship. Yes. And there's an earlier really gutting moment when Kanan says to Hera, I wish I could see you. The fact that he does because his sight returns to him in that final mm. instant before his death, even though he has gained the strength by this point in his arc to realize that he could see her and everything about life in so many other different ways, was this really deliberate but also organic storytelling choice. As Filoni said at the Lucasfilm screening of Jedi Knight, according to Nerdist, quote, in that moment, he's not bound as this material thing that the physicality of sight would be a limitation to him. He tells Hera at one point before they go to Malachor, we'll see each other again. I felt that this was a follow through. And it happened because when I was drawing the storyboards for that scene at my desk, a lot of those scenes, I'll sit there and personally pick all the shots and how I want it. I was drawing Kanan and I had drawn his eyes in. I was looking at it and thought, yeah, he should look at her. <laughs> so sad. It happened that way. You have to seize the moment where you're telling stories and it was just a fluid thing. Ah! Ezra's coping mechanism is fluid as well. And the wound opens again before it ever really healed as in a world between worlds. And Ezra has to watch the events of Kanan's death yet again and then find the strength Mm -hmm. to not intervene despite knowing that he could. The entire episode is mesmerizing on par with the Mortis arc and Clone Wars for its role in expanding the mythology of Star Wars in a way that is totally new and surprising and directly related to that arc because of the role the father, daughter, and son play as guardians of the Jedi Temple on Lothal and the portal to the dimension in which all time exists at once alongside an embarrassment of Star Wars, Easter egg riches. Of course, Losing the mentor is a key step on the hero's journey, as we've talked about at length, and it is for Ezra here, but it takes quite a lot of pain and time to process that. Eventually, when he sacrifices himself, albeit in different fashion, for the ghost, for Lothal in the series finale, he's able to do so because of Kanan's example and the great lesson from Kanan that he is finally at that point ready to understand and heed. As Filoni told Nerdist after a screening of Jedi Knight at Lucasfilm, There's a lot of Gandalf in this arc, the evolution of mentor so that the pupil has space to grow. Quote, a lot of my modeling comes from a a lot of my exposure to reading Tolkien. Gandalf is not a complete mentor. He's way more down the path than anyone else, but he's not complete. That's why he's very symbolically gray. He he has to figure it out along the way and then attain a new level. Kanan has to attain a new level before his apprentice can attain anything. And then you see the consequences of Ezra's actions. He doesn't get the lesson immediately. He doesn't understand what's going on there. And he falls into self-pity and he falls into fear. And all those things start to consume him again. The wolves go, whoa, (laughs) this is what he did for you. And this is what you give back. They get angry. They sniff that out. The biggest thing the wolves smell on him is fear. Man, he is just He's really, he understands this world, like, completely. There is... So much here in these episodes, including, of course, the understanding of how Ahsoka survived her duel with Vader on Malachor, which we're going to talk about in a second, and why she vanished for so long after. Ezra pulls her through that Deathly Hallows-esque shape in the world between worlds, and she returned back through that portal, Mm -hmm. back to Malachor, after she and Ezra best Palpatine, another enthralling part of this arc, thwarting his attempt to breach into that domain and closing the loop on the final shot that we see of Ahsoka in (laughs) the season two finale fading into the shadows. Just really remarkable. Any time that fantasy tales turn to time travel, as Jason talked about earlier, it is 
risky. This really is a masterclass in discipline and precision and a testament to how carefully plotted Rebels always was. It is a sublime moment of uniting Ahsoka and Ezra in a newfound understanding and appreciation of what the Force is and what it can offer and how you have to control yourself once you realize that. And it is also just a visually arresting and thrilling sequence to boot. The Lothwolf connection is also remarkable fantasy and lore. Just incredible. The story's own direwolves and warg bond. It's totally. in that that totally that parallel is inescapable. Right, right down, frankly, to the the colors of the pack. It's inescapable. You've got your white wolf, your ghost yes. figure. It's awesome. United with Kanan and Ezra <laughs> and their planet by the Force. It's one more powerful and completely cathartic way for us to see the unique bond Ezra and Kanan shared and understand. What it really meant for Ezra to be able to do what Anakin couldn't push beyond the temptation to save someone he loved, even though doing so would be wrong. Yes. To live for others and not for himself. It's the distillation of the Jedi way. The strength to see Kanan and not be able to save him is just remarkable. Finally, number one. Yes! What could it be? Had to be this. Had to be this. Twilight of the Apprentice Part 1 and Twilight of the Apprentice Part 2. Season 2, Episodes 21 and twenty. We spoke about this at length already in our Ahsoka pod when highlighting the best moments of Ahsoka's character arc. So briefly revisit Ahsoka and Vader duel on Malachor. It is an all-time Star Wars moment and the heartbeat of this two-part season two finale. But the entire Twilight of the Apprentice tandem hums and numerous characters play pivotal roles and undergo seismic tests and changes. The setting is deeply mysterious, a Sith world forbidden to the Jedi, housing a subterranean (laughs) Sith temple that they fall into, surrounded by relics from this prior battle, the great scourge of Malachor, an ancient conflict between the Jedi and the Sith. It's everywhere, frozen in time. The bodies, the abandoned lightsabers, all there for eternity after the activation of the superweapon. It's always been off limits to the Jedi since Kanan tells Ezra. Yes. But Yoda led them here, appearing to Ezra Classic and telling Yoda. <laughs> and telling him in the Go to the one place that we've always <laughs> said you shouldn't go. And telling him in the Jedi Temple on Lothal in season two, episode 18's Shroud of Darkness, another, when Ezra begged for clarity one. on how to fight and how to win. Win. Hmm? Win. How did Jedi choose to win? The question is, we already chose we're going to fight. <laughs> Find Malachor. Incredible shit from Yoda. That trip to the Jedi Temple in Shroud of Darkness brought new clarity for Kanan and Ahsoka as well as for Ezra. Kanan, facing a masked temple guard, eventually revealed to be the Grand Inquisitor. Yes. Amazing stuff. Heard, you will never be strong enough to protect your people and you will perish for your failure. This obviously sets the stage for the grievous injury at Maul's hand that he will suffer in the season two finale on Malachor, but also for how he will eventually disprove those words on Lothal in Jedi Knight by saving and guiding Ezra. Ahsoka, meanwhile, faces a vision of her old master, Anakin, recognizable at first in the flesh. Ahsoka, why did you leave me? Where were you when I needed you? I made a choice. I couldn't stay. You were selfish. No, you abandoned me. You failed me. Do you know what I've become? These are her... Greatest fears manifesting themselves as Anakin Spectre asks that last question. Vader's signature breathing kicks in 
and his iconic silhouette bathed in red looms behind her. It's the temple in her subconscious priming her to accept the truth at last. Human Anakin saying, do you know what I've become? And then Vader's breathing kicking in is fucking unreal. Each of their challenges for all three of them, cause them to look inward, of course, as the temple and the trials always do. Ezra, toward his own fear. Kanan, toward accepting his limitations and emerging as a knight of the Jedi Order, the Grand Inquisitor knighting him. Ahsoka, unable to deny the truth any longer, having to accept the way that things are, but also maintaining her determination to find a way to reach the ones that she's lost. And so they arrive on Malachor, where a new Inquisitor, the Eighth Brother, these guys just pop out of nowhere. Fucking believable. Guys and your gals. Mary Poppins-esque <laughs> umbrella portal of your red blade. Already waiting, but not for them. For our buddy Maul. Old master. <gasps> who's just <laughs> hanging out in the dark for years, I guess. Who's back in our story, making his oh, Rebels man. debut. The fifth brother and the seventh sister arrive shortly in pursuit of their prey, but they are hardly the biggest threat. Hardly. Maul and Ezra find each other. And it is one of those moments where we are really asked to think about the will of the Force, how people and things come together. And before long, Maul, as we said earlier, will be calling Ezra my apprentice routinely. What a, this is what an assumption, and unapologetically. my unapologetically. Unbelievable stuff from the Maulster. <laughs> and here he sees opportunity, the second Force user that he needs to retrieve the Sith holocron within the temple, which, as we will later see, can unite with a Jedi holocron to create a tool or a weapon, depending on your matter of perspective of enormous power, the ability to gain knowledge. Is knowledge a tool or is it a weapon? That's one of the things that this arc asks us to consider. There's a real video game quality to the pursuit of the holocron, almost like a platformer, but in a great way. It almost feels like virtual reality immersing you in every step Ezra and Maul take. It's amazing. After they've retrieved it, they all work together against the Inquisitors, talking about strange bedfellows, as they scale the pyramid, but as soon as the common foe is eliminated, Maul, of course, turns on Kanan, yep. blinding him with his red saber in one of the show's truly stunning moments. Yeah, Kanan covers his face with an old temple guard mask, the same one as foe, and eventual nighter wore in his shroud of darkness vision. So many connections in these episodes. It's really remarkable. When the holocron activates the temple and Vader arrives, standing atop his descending TIE fighter... An absolutely astonishing and riveting sequence of events ensues. Highlighted by Ahsoka emerging to duel her former master and save Ezra and Kanan from, and let's be clear, certain death. Yes. It was foretold that you would be here, Anakin says. Our long-awaited meeting has come at last. And he briefly tries to sway her, but she remains firm. I was beginning to believe I knew who you were behind that mask, but it's impossible. It's impossible. (laughs) My master can never be as vile as you. Anakin Skywalker was weak. I destroyed him. Then I will avenge his death. He says revenge is not the Jedi way. And then we get the all-time iconic Ahsoka comeback. I am no comeback. Jedi. I am no Jedi. Uh, and the fight is a symphony of violence. Ahsoka is a match for Vader in almost blow for blow in a way that no one else in the galaxy could be when she manages to slice open his helmet and reveals a portion of his face and his, and his eye allowing his true human voice to come out. The human being that we knew and loved and cared about just for a moment retreated to one of the most heart-wrenching moments in all of Star Wars as they say each other's names. (laughs) 
Ahsoka. Anakin. I won't leave you. Not this time. It's such a small thing, but it is enough. It contains worlds of emotion. Just for a minute, you think, maybe this will turn out differently than I know it has to turn out. Every single time Uh, you watch it. Through raspy breaths, he narrows his eyes, ignites his saber, Vader in the dark, claiming Anakin once again, then you will die, he says. And Ahsoka uses the force to push Ezra away from the fight and to safety. Watch as Kanan later will. But more than just the door between Ezra and Ahsoka closes there. Fans had waited years for that moment, just as the characters had for that confrontation and that closure. But it somehow not only lived up to the hype, it exceeded it. This is the moment of clarity for Ahsoka and Anakin. And the fact that it is so painful and so devastating is what makes it so powerful. Life does not always go the way that you hope it will. Hard truths await. People let you down. You let other people down. Whether you are able to push your way through that or find the people who can help you do that, that ultimately is what will determine the course of your life. But Ahsoka doesn't die. At the end of the episode, in a stunning montage, we see her limp into the shadows. But we don't know how she escaped until a world between worlds where past meets present and all the futures and all the pasts, and we learn the truth of Ezra's intervention. The other sequences in that closing montage are just as gutting. Vader also limping and alone, Kanan separated from his family on the ghost, apart and amassed, about to begin his own new journey of discovery and challenge and growth. And Ezra alone in his room, opening the holocron as the music surges and the red light bathes his eyes. It's genuinely fantastic. (laughs) In the running for the best Star Wars TV episode of all time, it's simultaneously a breakup letter, And a love letter to characters, old and new alike. It has heartwarming elements. It has heartbreaking elements. A totem to anguish and longing and connection. It's a masterpiece. Yes. Jason? Yes. The simplest gesture of kindness can fill a galaxy with hope. That's right. Every episode, we're going to honor that hope. The character or thing. Rally the troops, advance the cause. And today, the winner of our Medal of Bravery is... The wider Star Wars universe in the Disney canon era. When Disney acquired Lucasfilm in 2012 and decanonized the EU expanded universe in 2014, creating a vast offshoot of Star Wars stories, henceforth called Legends, there was a general lament about what it meant for the wider world of Star Wars storytelling beyond the primary films. While decanonizing the EU certainly remains a source of sadness for many, and while those stories remain precious to legions and will continue to for the rest of time, Star Wars Rebels, thanks to Dave Filoni and many others, went a long way toward restoring faith that the Disney era could richly expand the canon. Star Wars Forces of Destiny brought that new exploration to YouTube. Star Wars Resistance is wrapping its second season presently. The Mandalorian recently concluded an iconic debut run. We miss you, Yodes. More Disney Plus live action in development. Clone Wars obviously existed before the Disney canon era, but it's continuing on now with the highly anticipated season seven, 
Rebels is rightly beloved, the Marvel Star Wars comics era, long under Kieran Gillen's guiding hands, just to name a few, has been a tremendous success, enhancing our understanding of so many character arcs, including Darth Vader. Have you ever heard of him? <laughs> and introducing newly cherished figures like Dr. Aphra. Numerous novels from the Aftermath trilogy to Ahsoka to Queen's Shadow and beyond on and on the list goes have rekindled the novelization or new novel experience. Numerous video games from Battlefront to Jedi Fallen Order have continued the new canon expansion in that arena, BD1. There's even a new canonical theme park where you can guzzle that blue milk at Galaxy's Edge. On and on and on the list goes. The canon is widening. It is widening. Six years after the decanonization <laughs> change, the new non-film material is building its own vibrant, important, surely lasting legacy. The recent primary films have been, let's face it, divisive, but yes. fans can dive into these other properties to still learn and enjoy new aspects of the universe, even if they're disappointed by the action on the big screen. And we, honestly, we cannot recommend that highly enough. Clone Wars and Rebels are great. Treat yourself to a joyful experience. Legitimately great. Fabulous. And in that (laughs) same vein, with the uncertainty about the future movies and comments about how trilogies might not be the best feel of Star Wars movies anymore, the new expanded universe might be a better bet for telling more of these tales going forward and will certainly play a pivotal role, regardless of what happens on the big screen. All right, friends. What you need is faith. Just as we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder to continue to explore the galaxy with us. And you'll join us again next time as Binge Mode Star Wars concludes. At least for now. For now. There's always more Star Wars. There's always more stars in the wars. Wars in the stars. (laughs) With one final, again for now, character study. Until then, remember, we're not exactly anything. We're a crew, a team, in some ways, a family. Hold it right there, old man. Oh, a Jedi, is it? Yes. Well, I've come to this temple years ago to search for the thing that I know you must be searching for now. What is your name, young one? Uh, uh, Jabba. Wonderful. My name is Darth Maul. And we together shall open the door and find that which waits for us within my apprentice, yes. Well, let's not jump to conclusions. I think Apprentice... Yes, my Apprentice, follow me into the darkness. You can trust me. I consider the Grand Inquisitor my enemy as well. Yeah, the Grand Inquisitor, bad guy. But again, I have a master. Yes, Apprentice, I know. He is I, Darth Maul, your master. <laughs>